0: Hello, and welcome to the My Hope Story podcast from Hope Community Church, Balanok. Stories of hope, all about Jesus. Who are we? Saved by grace.
1: Excellent, right, we're going to start this. I have never hosted the podcast before. Stop. You have never spoken like this before. I've never
0: guested on a podcast Pete before. Has
1: never worked the camera before.
0: <laughs> so we're just going to have fun. <laughs> so,
1: so we had started a podcast for our church and kind of came up with the idea called My Hope Story uh, and so we've been working through our members and kind of getting their stories Brilliant. but we also thought it'd be cool to get some kind of stories of people broader from our church so mm. our mission is to make Jesus known in Berlanark and beyond yeah. and so we're really keen that, that the gospel goes forth beyond Berlanark and we can just see how the Lord is working there too and so that couple was just reading this book um, Stuart put us on Twitter, I don't know, was it a year ago?
0: i was running about that i, I think uh,
1: and i ordered it because i've got a book budget so i just order any book <laughs> that comes up and uh, i picked it up a new year and actually i couldn't put it down and i read through the full good. thing in, in just over a week and it was great yeah. so i thought it'd be good to get you on Stuart. the two reasons i really like this book first was that i thought i gave a really good insight of what it is to grow up in mm. easterhouse kind, of, like, kind of east end of glasgow and um, clearly i'm not from here and um, pete's not from here some of our members are some of them aren't and so i just thought the insight you gave was really helpful so i want to talk to you about that okay and then also we, we call it my hope story our podcast and i think again reading this it's clear that jesus broke in and gave you hope yeah. which is mm-hmm. great so it'd be great to hear a little bit about that as well but you want to quickly introduce yourself maybe give <laughs> a 30 second version of this and then 30
0: second version of that okay <laughs> uh, my name's stuart partison The version is uh, 16th of May, 1997, I found myself, 27-year-old, sitting in the front seat of a car on my way to work. Guy stuck a gun in my back and pulled the trigger. I'd come through 13, 14 years of addiction and circumstances we're going to talk about led to that moment. But actually to the point a week later I walked in through the doors of a teen challenge centre in South Wales and it really was God breaking into my life. Through a, gam- jo- a jammed, gun, jammed John. <laughs> <laughs> that
1: was great, man. That I was 30 that. seconds the- ago. <laughs> um, no, that's awesome, that's awesome. So let's go, There's kinda, I guess two main parts of this yeah. I thought would be helpful. So the first one is the kind of growing up in Easter House and I guess the addiction years that you kind of talk about in the book. So first I was going to just describe some of the guys listening, uh, maybe some of our partners mm-hmm. won't have heard of Easter House, so you want to give us your kind of a take on what Easter House at the East End maybe was like when you were younger, but also
0: is like maybe today as well? Yeah, I I think, I mean, I'm involved in a couple of Facebook uh, groups that are Easter House, and the one thing that will come across in most of those groups is, as a community, just how strong we are, but we even were then, and the memories and all that then. So so for me, those memories of growing up early childhood before I really got in, before actually I started experiencing life outside Easter Mm -hmm. House, you know what I mean? Well, really, really good. I mean, Mum, Dad, we had there was five of us, and then Neil came along in nineteen eighty-two. Ten-year gap between him and my younger brother lived in a bottom flat in Easterhouse, but just to set the scene at that point, the population of Easterhouse, it was social housing that was built in the 1950s as Glasgow was dealing with slum housing. And by slum housing, we mean it really was very, very bad. It was Victorian-era housing that was literally falling apart. Uh, there was no proper sanitation or anything. And this was the 70s, uh, the 50s, sorry. So they built these four large schemes on basically the corners of Glasgow, Drumchapel, Castle, Pollock and Easterhouse. And, you know... God chose Easter house for it. <laughs> There's no other way to describe it. But the population at that time in going into the 80s was something like 56,000. Oh, wow. So there was no... look. So I think we reckon that the stats say that in the 80s, that population, something like 25,000, would have been 25 or under, which is, you know, the 60s boom and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and you know, the summer of love and all the rest <laughs> of it. And uh, 25,000 people, 25 or under... There was no social interaction in the sense of organised activities for young people other than the odd church that maybe I put on church clubs. There was no gyms, there was nothing like that. I remember somebody describing it this way, there was no coffee shops. There was nowhere to go and hang out with your friends other than on the streets. And so that became life for quite a, not a large percentage of Easter as kids because the image it's portrayed is that it was most of them, it wasn't. But for the ones that I ended up running away, it was like that. Family life was good and bad. My mum was phenomenal. She would do everything she could. And my dad, in a lot of ways, was a typical Glasgow male, in a sense, quite uh, schizophrenic, you know. He could come home at the, the, a Friday night from work, take you camping. He's done umpteen jobs: steeplejack, chimney sweep, whatever to earn a living. But he could come home on a Friday night, take you all camping, or he could come home on a Friday night and you had to hide in the room yeah. because uh, he'd been drinking spirits in the pub and it became...
1: You
0: say in the book that he got a bit of a reputation about how you say it, your dad just ran. He, he, he did have, uh, he was a no nonsense uh, guy. He could fight, uh, he could hold a grudge. <laughs> and uh, So, yeah, he did have a bit of reputation. And I think as I went into in my gang and drug life, I probably benefited from that. Well, I know that I did on certain occasions when it was known whose son I was. Yeah. You know, a lot of threat was removed, not because I was a fighter, I couldn't fight, sleep. <laughs> But uh, yeah, so there was that. Uh, There's
1: a great story in it, um, about when you went to the dentist or something.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, I like that story. I think that was my favourite one <laughs> to write. It was called Bite Size. Yeah. But it was a standout memory based on, I remember I was about 10, 11 years old. Uh, we lived in a tenement block, so six and a close, with Rabbid Road at this point, six houses, you know, up the one common entry close. And uh, I remember Tam McNeil. John Ross, upstairs, guys on about the same age as me. I'm up playing. There was no malice. No, but I fell and I banged my tooth off it one of the stairs, and my tooth broke, you know, half. But I didn't go into the dentist at this point, like every two weeks for root treatment. You know, this was before we got, like, uh, what do you call it, braces and all the rest of it. So root treatment was they went in and fiddled about your gums. So i went every two weeks. So my mum and my dad would always comment, oh, the dentist hasn't really ever mentioned that. You know, expecting it, but one day after about six months, and it's funny, I can still picture it. It was a dark, miserable winter's day, you know, and uh, dentist was crowded. People smoked in waiting rooms, all <laughs> that. You know, it was so picturesque in the sense that you would think some cheesy movie writer had written the scene. But I'll never forget that like, after I'd been in, and the dentist actually to me, which isn't about in the, in the way that he commented to an 11-year-old boy put a tooth, but he came out into a packed waiting room, I mean, it's tiny, it was like a port cabin, and commented on the fact about it was shocking that this boy's parents hadn't done anything about his tooth, and he'd done it so that everybody could hear, which really embarrassed my mum, and if you know my mum, that doesn't know, do her well, and I, I could see the hurt in her, and so, you, you, you know, the shock... So, so you know to try and th- th- what she did was she went home mm-hmm. and my mum never known who my dad was and his reputation she would never ever go to him to fight her battles mm-hmm. because she knew what could result from it but she was so hot last time that she did mention it and it was quite Comical looking back at the fact that he's taken my hand, and you know, he's we've marched right down Aberdalge Road and crossed over, uh, crossed over West Easterhouse Road and uh, up the side of the doctor's surgery, and then around the dentist sat at the back of the doctors, you know. And (laughs) if you knew the dentist that was in there, it was the right place for him, you know, hidden out of sight. I went into the surgery and demanded <laughs> to see the dentist but the most controlled <laughs> I've ever seen a man who had no control yeah. over his temper and it actually came out it was just hilarious the way that he made the dentist look in the appointment book and all the rest of it and it was how he handled it was so out of character for yeah. him that, you know, it was... it was caught, And everybody's sitting there. I mean, you really could have cut the tension because they're all expecting Paddy Patterson to go mental yeah. and start battering this dentist <laughs> out. But he never did that. And how he handled it was brilliant. You know, the dentist trying to bluff his way because he's this educated yeah, middle-class yeah. dentist. How dare this peasant, yeah. you know, come in here and speak to him. And uh, if he'd known who my dad was, he wouldn't. <laughs> and so it came out where my dad just made him find out. Because remember, the dentist appointments saying were on the computerized. Oh, it was no, books no and everything's written in. and It was a diary. So he made him go back through and show that I'd been there every two weeks for six months and kept bringing it up. And then he was walking out the door and he walked out the door he just turned around and says, you ever mess with my wife again? I'll be back. <laughs> I'm no Schwarzenegger. In, <laughs> in fact, back. I'm convinced that scene was like they knew about my dad that and went. this escapade at the dentist. But I'll never forget the way my ma looked at him. Yeah. You know, and you can imagine scheme life. scheme so it's not often that a wife will look at her husband in that way. Yeah. But I just remember that you know stood she, aye, he, that, this was her husband uh, he stood up for me and I think that might have been why it never resulted in pure a bloodbath because it was for my mum
1: yeah.
0: but I remember walking it seemed like all of a sudden the sun was shining and everything as we walked back down the street that day but it was a standout moment a scheme life for me And it's funny because I've done a post on Facebook about that and everybody talked about a dentist, which isn't the point. I'm not trying to get people to nail. You know, my book, I always try and take responsibility for it. It's not there to blame my dad, I blame my mum, I blame dentists, I reckon. I'm still responsible for decisions I make, gotcha. no matter the circumstances surrounding those decisions. I, I, I thought
1: it was a great insight, just into that kind of like, schizophrenic nature, I yeah. guess but it's right, isn't it? Yeah. It's so, like brothers and sisters, how many brothers and sisters do you have?
0: I have two older brothers, uh, my eldest brother passed away Christmas 2002. Mm. Uh, then there's Gary and then there's my sister Yvonne and then there's two younger brothers so there's Dan who's two years younger than me and then Neil who's 12 years younger Are
1: you all like pretty similar growing up? Like were you
0: personalities the same or? No it, it's kind of strange isn't it? How, how can you you know take the same ingredients and have like, different results every it, time it. and we always thought that my sister was more of a man than any is but that was she's grown up in the middle of basically four boys because it was such a big gap for the youngest and uh, you know so I was I was mad watching like my eldest brother John. He's one of the most loved people that ever set foot in the streets of Euston. Mm. He was so you, you know he was a drinker, but he was a binge drinker. But he was ruined by a bad relationship. He took it very very badly. It was very very toxic, and it basically finished him off. It just took a few years for that to happen. But everybody loved him. I mean, he's one. It's trying to get how Easterhouse was in the eighties, where there was always people hanging about right. the streets. And John could come over and fall asleep beside any group of guys, probably anywhere in the scheme, and nobody would touch him. He was so loved. Do you know what I mean? And uh, Gary was—I don't know how to describe Gary. I need to be careful because your <laughs> Gary's still kicking. And uh, yeah, he's, he's probably one of the most filmed people on Facebook. But again, as big brothers go, he is—he is a good guy. He, he never get caught up in the gangs. He had a bunch of mates, bit he hung out with, but never get caught up in the worst elements it. Daring again, get caught up in some of the stuff I did, but not to the extent that I did either. And Neil has just always had his uh, nose to the ground, got on me, used to run the brig bar just inside the train station. And, you know, uh, he's out what go all now, but he's always just... Yeah. We, my mum used to always say, when we used to moan that he was getting spoiled, my mum used to always say, quite right, and you's lot should be spoiling him soon Kay. as well. So he's he's growing up with a sense of entitlement, which has served him well. Yeah. You know, it's a bit like when you look about how Jewish mothers used to speak to Jewish kids and that entitlement, you know, you're God, you're gods, you belong to God, you can do anything. And Neil always said that and it served him well. He's just never got caught up in any of the toxic side of scheme life.
1: So, like, I guess, saying that, you're a little bit about the gangs and stuff, like, like, so I'm not from East Royce, Um working here for 11 years, lived now in Berladic for five or six years, and I guess... Some of the first things you hear when you're coming into that is the Calcutta Gang thing that was there in the seventies. Right. Like clearly, I don't think there's much of that today in the same way at all. But what what was that like? like should that that kind of be out of nowhere that reputation. Like it, in-
0: it's it's not what was portrayed. I think there was a the problem. There was a book done. I think it was based in the sixties called No Mean City, which was based mm. on the inner city gangs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you, you know that was the Razor gangs and all that. So I think that no matter mm. what gangs developed after that, they were going to have that same reputation. I'm not saying it wasn't deserved. But it wasn't... We we were a bunch of guys... I mean, you're talking about there was real geographical boundaries in East Roush. Yeah, very, very clear areas. So very naturally, uh, guys began to hang out just in your own area. You already knew, it was already written into your DNA that you couldn't go into other gang areas. And different names, didn't they? What was the names or something? Well, our gang was East Roush on Agro. It used to be the pack in the 70s. I don't think anybody knows why. It moved... From that. Uh, the other gangs, it was like Drummies, Skinheads, pr- uh, Providence. I mean, to be fair, <laughs> we didn't really care about the other ones. Our, our rivals were the Drummies and the Dentoy Toy existed yeah. in between them, but they, they were basically, you know, we fought in their area.
1: And like, so that. Proper fighting, like cause some of the yeah. stories. Like, what was the one about the, the Lockend School or something like that as well? And your mum comes in, and is that the same one? There's one with your mum. Yeah. just
0: no, Well, there's a couple of that. So what's happened with, So that takes me through, though. That skips ahead of the Hutchisons, which I know you wanted okay. to well, speak tell about. Tell us the
1: story. Then so we'll come back.
0: Aye. So, so the gangs. It was a funny thing. Was so I ended up because of how my education worked. I ended up in Lockend High School. My problem was that Lockend was in the drummies gang area, mm. and. Uh, you know, there's a sense that I was more scared of my mum than I was the gangs, and that's not that where she was an overbearing bully. It was just that was your mum. You know, you, you couldn't. And so I went to Lockend, and I tried to come up with some excuses not to go, but it became quite a chat. I made good friends on Lockend, some I still have, but the other gang also went there. And I remember times, for instance, where I've got in French, and I'm pointing, because I can still picture the buildings, you know. So, for instance, there was one time I'm up in French, and when the bell rang, I had to get down. Like, I was up on the third floor, uh, had to get down those stairs, and then and there was boys' and girls' doors into what we called the arena then, which was this large 400-metre track, the rugby pitch in the middle. But I had to get down and get across the arena to safety <laughs> in my gang's area before the bell stopped ringing, and for all the time getting caught up, but the drummy boys, and sometimes it was up to 50, sometimes it was quite a lot, we would be standing outside the boys' door and I would run out the lasses' door. And it, it just sort of... And, and, you know, I remember what I ended up happening. Mr. Don, who became the headmaster long after, they were all trying to fight. They all knew that there was something about me that was good at education. Mm-hmm. So they were all trying to fight to keep me, but they weren't only keeping me, they were keeping my potential, if you know what yeah, I mean. So yeah. nobody was actually really sitting talking to me about me. Mm-hmm. And it, but it ended up, the police used to have to then mark the gate. Now, Lockend has a policeman on duty and said, good Christian guy, uh, when it's open, has a policeman on duty okay. full-time in or no? But at that time, it was unknown. I mean, you're talking about Glasgow. This wasn't Los Angeles or New York. <laughs> but Glasgow had to put a policeman on duty at a school gate because of a gang fighting. I can't fight sleep (laughs) do you know what I mean I just found myself in these ridiculous situations and uh, what was the fog
1: one because remember there was
0: the fog one was uh, you know so in the summer and it makes it sound like we were all about the gang fighting but in the summer you got the pictures we were bored we really were so, you would go up, and in the Bible, the story of David and Goliath, you know, where you get the Philistines and you get the Israelites up on the side of the hills, and they're all shouting about battle, but there's no really much fighting going yeah. on. And Goliath is shouting, I'll take your hard man. It was a bit like that, you know, where you'd all be shouting about it. So, we were all hanging about one night, and it was a very, very, very thick fog, a proper old pea super, as we used to call it. Like, you couldn't, you genuinely couldn't see two feet in front of you. And there was this sort of, silence just you know i don't know how to describe it a, a loud silence you know that uh, like fog does and uh
1: kind of eerie
0: aye and but it was all you sudden. there was this noise came for like, feet away and i can still picture when you got to there used to be this path that cut across lock pitches, pitches and you just seen these people coming from nowhere just running at you and i've ducked down behind the wall and, but I've seen something come and glinting at me, you know, just the way the light caught it, and it smashed off, still got its scarred, smashed off my thigh and cut into it. And you know, it's that sort of thing, you look at it and you just go, I'm oh. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but it was though then, so then we were in, this is in sort of Dental Gang area where we sort of we won the fair there, but we thought, but I'm watching guys jump in the other handers and everything, and it was one of the most absurd and ridiculous scenes I've ever seen in Easter's terms. And, you know, we laugh and joke about it, but people were hurt that night, and gang fighting in Easterhouse has resulted in a lot of violence. But you are talking about gangs who, for the most part, aren't gang fighting. Yeah. So it, even at that, it was surreal. But in the summer, we would spend the full six weeks up these pitches. But that night was surreal, even by Easterhouse gang standards. It was just, like, you know, when you talk to people that were there, at uh, at that time they, they, it's that like man that was mad you know what I mean once it's like they're back in the moment and then obviously once the fighting stopped the post turned up the post obviously ton turning up they? just at the end you know and uh, it was like the Calvary and the old Cowboy and Indian <laughs> films they would always arrive too late and we, we just went back down and we hung about in the entire quad that was our bit and we hung about the war there and that's just like, but very quickly then you just go back into your, your routine of walking around the block and that, was that there wasn't much else to do so I
1: i think what you're saying about the whole boredom thing is interesting isn't it that's why a lot of the youth work that we used to do back in the day these days is trying to engage those guys yeah. in something else and because um, whenever they are bored there's nothing else to do and I, I mean you're saying as well when the communities were built it was literally let's just build all the houses out here but let's forget about other things that might give communities like, so. there wasn't
0: even a school built. i mean my mum moved into uh, a street <laughs> uh, and Easter, you know she moved from east End, she was at a white hill secondary that was her school even after they moved to easteress when she was a teenager she had to keep going to white hill because they built all this housing but they hadn't built any sort of infrastructure mm-hmm. uh for until i think 1971 1972 the police station was uh on a bit of grass in the street it was mental it was two cabins. that was a police station the, the first social infrastructure they built was greer's pub Makes sense. Recipe for disaster for <laughs> people, you know, working-class background that, that's all there is to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was it. The, the, the sports centre that we have, which we still, you know, we campaigned, or not me personally, because I was too busy getting caught up and running the place down, <laughs> but people who campaigned for some sort of sports centre for decades, and then Glasgow Life, it wasn't called that then, built the gym just at the back of the doctors, but it was too expensive for locals yeah. to use. They're mental.
1: Which is why like so I have a lot of time for people that we've got to know about a lot of stories as well, that local people that fight for that kind of stuff and mm. want to see like infrastructure for the yeah. local people to get plugged into whether that be community centres or even the school they the branch and stuff up there, region's house yeah. there's doing a lot of stuff, which is great. Anyway, let's get back to childhood. So you said you did mention there that you are quite you're a bit of a shine at school. Like maybe academically, yeah. you are very academically what's going on. So Primary school, like? What, what was that starting like for you? So age five, I guess, you're off
0: I the- Actually, I was four. My birthday's February, so the way that it works in Scotland is, you know, if your birthday's before the 28th or the 29th, every 4th year, February, then you go in. So you're going What date young. in February are you? I'm 13th. 13th so exactly. So I was 51 just on Saturday there, happy birthday to me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, so I was quite young at school, and... Other, other than the, I mean, I, I remember some memories vivid. I remember, you know, being asked in primary one to say the word the, mm. and the teacher sort of humiliating me. Like, oh no, see, you keep saying up you know, in your mind, I'm like, I'm, no, I'm saying it, I'm saying what you're asking me to say, and all the rest. But my first day was a, a real temper tantrum for me because here was my two-year-old brother being left with my mom. I wasn't happy about that. I felt like I was being abandoned. And it's funny, I could still picture that moment as this four-year-old being abandoned. And that means Dan's getting yeah, my mate, So it. my
1: eldest son still does the exact same thing whenever he started school. <laughs> His people <laughs> was at home, so it wasn't just you.
0: Yeah, I mean, Dan developed a history growing up where he knew how to get me in trouble because <laughs> he was the youngest, you know, like he was doing that. But actually not for school. So at that time the schools had, you know, exams at the end of year to mark performance. It was a normal thing. And we never thought nothing of it. I don't think it scarred any of us in the way that it's made out that it would. Uh, but I, I would always come in the top three. Actually it was normally always me and Linda Shergold were first or second, taking shots each. A, other than one of the years when one of my grandparents uh, died. And uh, I was thoughtful. But that, 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 that was great. But or even in Easterhouse terms, our family didn't fit. Mm-hmm. You know, we weren't. Uh, like some of the other ones that did it were, were probably from more respectable families. <laughs> There's no other way to describe it, you know what I mean? And uh, so I, I, I remember in the start of Primary Seven, my friend Todd Costa saying to me, he was all excited because he'd been told that he'd been put forward to go and sit the entrance exams for Hutchison's Grammar in the High School of Glasgow. And
1: Which are you, private schools? Private schools. Uh, proper
0: so proper <laughs> private, like. Proper private. Scholarship, you know, at that time, I think the fees were £3,000 a year. They £13,000 a year now. Uh, but proper private, we knew that the, the the standard that you had to pass to get what was the Glasgow City bursary then, which doesn't exist, because we were never going to get the school bursary. Yeah. That wasn't going to happen. It had to be the Glasgow City one. And so, you know, we, we do work. But, so I went home all excited, telling my mum, oh, my Mum, Todd says it, they've been put forward for us. So we just assumed, because I'd always yeah, been yeah. higher placed that they get it and my mum says oh that's great they'll tell you tomorrow and i remember sitting there the next day and i was quite shy i was quite you know yeah. so i wouldn't have approached that but i remember sitting there all day waiting and the teacher coming and saying and i didn't you know there was nothing said and i remember going home that day and my mum's all excited and she said Did you, would, so what and she, i never say anything. so we must storm into to the school the next day and she went through them i mean she really threatened me she went oh no you know mrs Patterson, that your son you know he's not we've only put the top performing and she went, do you want to look at these grades over a year and tell me that because of one year, you're justifying it? And my mum, I remember my mum saying, I'll go to the papers, well, you know, she was going, I'm going to yeah. kick up a fuss. And what they actually said was, so it was funny watching with summer education department and years going by then trying to take credit for that. And I said, actually, it wasn't the school that put me forward, it was my mum. And you they think that's because
1: they thought you didn't fit.
0: I do not fit. They didn't think I'd fit into that setting. Maybe they were proved right, but actually maybe if... We, it's like this funny thing with school, you know, Scottish Government talks about GIFIC, get it right for every child. There's a couple of times I've had to go to toe-to-toe with the Scottish Government on behalf of my own kids, where I saying, you're failing that. You're still treating them uh, generically rather than as individuals in their own right and what's right for them. But that's because I've learned when to open my mouth. Yeah. <laughs> then I didn't. And uh, so, yeah, went off for the exams. It's totally naive, totally oblivious, you know. Other than going down the water, which is what we did for holidays, you know, doing the silcoats and Helensburgh and things like that, the only holiday we ever had experience was Butlands in 1979. Is a fact that was it. Mm-hmm. So I'd never really experienced life outside the scheme. Mm-hmm. And aye, uh, and uh, so got that. And it was funny because I did a radio interview with Stephen and He was the first person that says to me, "What was your first day at Hutchison's like?" And it, it must have been so non-descriptive first mm-hmm. day that. It just didn't enter into me. That, cause it was Hutchinson's I got. I got a full bursary there, but I never get the books, which is important yeah. for what unfolded. Uh, and
1: you, I mean, there was a bit in the book where your dad took you. In the I, day, because You must have been, what, 12? 11, 12, 12, 11. I couldn't believe this. There's no way I'd be doing my kid this these days. It will not happen
0: these days, but <laughs> aye, that's a good point. So, but that's how it was, you know. Uh, so, so Sorry, I so uh, what you're talking about is my very first day as a pupil going to sit the exams, And my granddepartisan mm. died, you know, that, at that point, but they didn't tell me after I'd sat at the Hutchison's one, because they say my granddad didn't want me to know. I know it was one of the things we want to talk about. My grandparents were everything to me, yeah. my, especially my granddad. In those early years, he was everything. He he treated me normal, or even more so. My cousin that was brought up, as mum called you know, my, uh, his mum died early, was the only person through my childhood and teens that spoke to me as a normal person, yeah. rather than speaking at me over what they thought. And uh, I... So... I remember, so we get told that, but the very first day, that was it. Remember, my dad got me up, two buses across the city, you know, dark o'clock in the morning, evening in August, two buses across the city, uh, picked me up that day, and then that was it. I had to make my own way. And it was funny, I was talking to one of my old school friends, uh, old messenger, today, and we were saying about that, saying about train, because I got the train across here the day and I said man no, I hate trains and they said uh, so that, I but it was part of life and I says, no I says, I think for me going around the underground I said I became an expert in the underground Aye. when I stopped going but it was nondescript first year first year was alright but I very quickly started to lie because you know they're talking about coming for these fancy hussies in Newton Merns and Bears then. I was fair top flat and in Easterhouse and so I was immature I might have been intelligent but I was very immature and I didn't know how to deal with that other than feel Probably guilt mm. that that had that never had it, and there's a lot of stuff that's instilled into you Easter's from those that should know better. That I, I you're unaware of it, but the, you know the words are used. So the socialising that was going on in my life through the school, etc., uh, and the, the social construction that had been going on in my life. Us church people hate those terms, but as part of it, it was they created this thing about Neil aware as kids we were taught when you move it to nearly be ashamed that you came for your scheme. Mm. And yet, actually, community-wise, it was fantastic. But I, So I never became really aware of this stuff till first year started going on. But my first day in first year, uh, sitting in, I think it was uh, one of these things, funny enough, have thought the details. I can't even remember if it was history or English. And the teacher's asking us what schools we went to? And I says, well, Thomas Primary School. I remember her name, Mrs. McCondaghy. And she went, "Well, Thomas Primary? And I said, she went, I used to teach in that. She'd done a probationary Mm -hmm. in that school. So it's these days where as adults we look through it and go, that's a God thing, preparing the way for us. So that was my first day there was a teacher that knew Bartomek and she was so loving and talked about fond memories. So that was a good start, but it was pretty much our doing health. Yeah,
1: so... So they, was it, you got to the end of first year. Or was
0: it was when did you when did it all unravel? Well, understand. first year you're in King Gar Street, which was the primary building. So you did first year. So second year you moved over to Beaton Road, which is a far newer building. You're in with the older kids and all the rest of it. But I remember during that summer saying to my mum, "So we didn't get bursary for the books, mm-hmm. and it's about three hundred pound even in the eighties for the books. So I remember having a call, Mum, I need all those books because I don't know when I'll need them. She went, No, 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 we'll get them. You get notes, we'll get them as you go. And I remember going in, Mister Strang. I don't know what it is about English teachers, but they always seem to be very alpha male type, even when they're female. (laughs) And, you know, it's nearly their presence demands respect and fear. And so he says, "Okay, next week you need of mice and men. We're going to start in that. And I remember just at that moment the panic and fear because I knew I didn't have it. I also knew that money was tight. And so I remember then making my way back across the city and having to try and work up the courage to say, Mom, I'm gonna to need to get this. And I know that a lot of young people listening might not get the idea. There was no Amazon, there was no next day delivery. You know what I mean? So it wasn't even about a bit of money thing, it was actually finding out how to and where to get it. And uh but so worked my way up, got up, and I've got there up there, it's like two sets of stairs, well the third floor and, and a three block, uh, three high tenement block. And as I walked in the door, my mum and dad are arguing about money. And I just remember going, no, I'm not, I'm not mentioning it. So when it came around the following Friday to go to English, and at Glasgow Central Station, uh, bank of phones, funnily enough, are still there halfway along the platforms. And I picked up the phone and phoned the school and pretended it was my dad. My voice hadn't broken yet, <laughs> but because they're not expecting like, a 12-year-old boy to phone and pretend, there was no questions asked. And I just says I wasn't well. And I carried that on just missing the Fridays for six weeks. But then when they started to question it, uh, it, it began to get, you know, wider and all the rest of it. But one of the things that we assumed was, so Hutchison's was set up in teaching groups. According to academic ability, there were seven. Mm-hmm. I was in teaching group three, so I was quite a good achiever. They assumed that I wasn't going because were, I was struggling with the work. All they had to do was check my work and see there was no struggle struggling. I was good at it and getting good grades. So they assumed that, so they moved me down to teaching group six. Mm-hmm. Which you know, so you can imagine as a kid already being ashamed of where I came from, no reason to be ashamed of Easter House, but that was how I had allowed myself to feel there. So when they moved me down to teaching group six, I said, I'm no drug. And so I missed about three or four months straight.
1: You said you used to just travel the underground? Yeah,
0: travel the underground. The only time I was challenged was actually on a train. And the conductor says to me, because even at that time in the 80s, children weren't supposed to be unoccupied during school time, and a, a, unaccompanied, sorry. Conductor says to me, I've seen you on here a lot, you alright? So instead of going with a big bag of books over my shoulder, I would change of clothes, I'd go into the toilets in Glasgow Central Station and get clothes I changed and then I'd go out. But the underground, I knew the 15 stops, I'd get off and I'd explore, because I had my card. Yeah. I'd get off and I'd explore. But it really was such a meaningless, every day it was counting down the minutes to when it was safe to go on. But I still had to watch because kids from Hutchinsons would be getting some of the trains and I had to avoid that. And, and how did you, I, you
1: get a out? is your mum or did...
0: Well, it ended up that the school made an issue of it that I hadn't been attending and it was all this. So, and I remember clearly Mr. Perso, who was a PE teacher, trying to fight my battle for me again. but. There was nobody sitting talking to me and saying what's going on. And I'm not saying that I would have answered. Mm-hmm. But there just wasn't any attempt to speak to me. It was always about me. Mm-hmm. And there was always an assumption of what was going on. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's meant not to think it was over a stupid book. <laughs> <laughs> of mice and men, funnily and enough.
1: And you, you, you're proud to think, sure, that wouldn't happen today. But it does. the whole like, thing of not listening to where the folk are at, yeah. I'm sure it definitely happens. Just ass- yeah. assumptions. And-
0: I'm part of a couple of groups in the University of Strathclyde. And uh, actually, some of the, one of the things that we did... I had some teachers getting back to me and saying, no, you know what, That we thought that that day was gone, but some teachers getting back to me saying, no, sorry to say, it still goes on. And it goes on a lot more than we think, where it's about assuming what's going on in the kid's life, but not actually sitting down and talking to him, even though that's supposed to be how it's conducted now. So yeah, it's heartbreaking.
1: So you moved back, Hutchie, you're back in the house, Lock End,
0: is that where you... To go to Lock End, because there was no way in this earth that I was going to Westwood, because all the hooligans went to Westwood, and, you know, and... (laughs) So I had to go to Lock End quite grudgingly. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, and that that was mental. I remember one of the boys there who sort of was one of the leaders of one of the gangs having a go at me and the prefect grabbing him, and he got expelled, and I just (laughs) thought, no, because obviously that's not going to help me. But then we come to the summer, so it's the end of third year, so the start of third year, six weeks into third year, I left Hutchison's, went to Lockend. And even academically-wise, I found myself in lock through all the classes, sitting, repeating what I'd done first year in Hutchison's, so far ahead where they in their teaching skill. And lock was good, mm-hmm. but you can imagine what it's like, you're sitting, repeating stuff that you already I knew it. as a kid. It was very boring. I remember even a French intern from France getting me into trouble thinking I was taking the mickey, because in French class, and I enjoyed French and I was good at it then, but I would use a French accent because that's how we thought and they thought I was taking the mickey and used to keep putting me out in the class. And I remember thinking, what if you speak to me, <laughs> <laughs> Don't assume I was the least likely to cause trouble, but there you go. Uh, but no, I couldn't last. So the day you're talking about, you mentioned earlier. So the entire quad through squad, there was what we call the drummer milk float, right? Which was a milk float and did deliver milk. But it was also used to try and come down, because we would do these raiding parties in each <laughs> other's gang areas. It's, I know it's mental, but... So there was this one day, middle of the summer hall, actually it wasn't the middle, it was the end, because it was the Saturday before we went back to school. They'd been doing collecting money for the milk run, and we'd seen them and this almighty battle started. I mean, it was crazy, and there's kids playing, and but it was crazy, and there must have been 40 or 50 involved in this massive street fight. And I think I've had a brick or a boat or something i hand. them running and the next thing I felt the grab it of the air my mum pulling me in the middle of the sky and saying, you have to go to school even Monday. you're flipping and <laughs> the language is a bit more colourful <laughs> that's my <laughs> point say that? <laughs> but I, she pulled me right out of that so I lasted a couple of days at the start of the and I just look as my I can't go here I need to go to Westwood I'm going to get killed yeah. and it would have been in uh such this aye. so that was mental <laughs>
1: And then, so it was mid-teens onwards that you started have dabbling in some of the kind of stuff that you got to bother with addiction-wise and things like, so how did, what was the transition there? Well, did,
0: I'd already sort of started that, because you're, you're looking for, so that day, is, well, you know, DVD. it wasn't was DVDs, it was VHSs, there wasn't a shop in East so it was Duke Street, so because I had the travel card, mm-hmm. I was the one that would go and pick the movies, and sort of things, sort because of, I had the transcript, didn't cost money. There was guys that came around the movies in their book, you know what I mean? <laughs> but I would be the one that was sent there. But on the way to get the bus, I'd see some of the local guys that I'd already sort of knew, but I'd stone and talk to him. And it was great. I was actually talking about us in a university thing the other day. It was great because there was no judgmentalism. I reckon up like with these guys, and it was just fun to hang out with. Some of them were sniffing glue. I tried it twice, didn't like it. Just wasn't my thing. But they would be, you know, so they would be smoking hash and things like go here do you want to and you, you would do it, but you weren't, the, you know, and they were like, you're mental, why are you even doing that? You 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 know what I mean? So that was while I was still at Hutchie, that started. And then you'd be taking some of the wine, but no really caught up. But as I moved on then into Lock End, that became there. Because you're just looking for it, because obviously you can imagine in the house, it was like, there was constant, there was a lot of tension, oh, when you think, and you know, that aimed at you because you were new at Westwood, you know, what a failure. And so you would just hang out with these guys because there was none of that. Mm-hmm. And it really was just a bunch of local guys that just hung out. We'd build dens, we'd make fires, we'd brick into empty houses because we didn't realise that that was rank right, to get the wood to build the dens and make the fires and things like that. And th- th- it wasn't really malice or mischievous. And it was funny because those days, the early teens, but somebody was saying about this, about burglar or daning but in those days it was non existent because as much as there was a bunch of guys that got caught on that, Nobody would dare because they would get battered. Yeah. And we really did protect not just our own, but anybody there. And people say, look, Easter is been a terrifying place to live, but it's one of these funny things. If you weren't involved in the gangs, it wasn't an issue. Don't get me wrong, it would be intimidating walking up the quad and there's a bunch of 20 guys sitting there that are stoked because you're coming to stay. Yeah. But as soon as, it, right, he's no Fedromia there, that's all right. Mm. And so it was kind of mental, but that was how I drifted into that. Mm. Was it that? I left school at fifth. I didn't get seriously into drugs, even though I was dabbling. It was kind of funny how it came about. So my first job, YTS Butcher, I'm sitting in geography in fifth year when it sort of struck me, okay, I can leave because the age thing meant you couldn't leave to Christmas in fifth year because my birthday was February. And I remember sitting there, so it'd all been wrote out. I was doing my hires. I was doing a certificate of six-year studies as it was then as well. I remember sitting there one day and going, oh, I can leave. And it was that simple and that sudden, and I left. And I got a job as a YTS butcher, and I'd heard people talking about this drug, acid, right? And I remember I was getting curious about it, and uh, I was going with a lassie for one of the other gangs. It only lasted a couple of weeks. One of the big things that came out as well as walking the butcher I was walking up the road one night because my mad always taught me they had to do these things, and they all jumped me and battered me. Right? I mean, you were say up me. <laughs> walking her up the road. But the funny thing was, it was a guy on his in the night before had seen me walking her up that had went and go all oh, the rest oh. of them. <laughs> I, <know>, I, <laughs> I just need a gang to jump me in kind of fight. <laughs> but it ended up it was these guys that was supplying the acid. So all of a sudden, it was when I began to see a change because because they heard I was wanting it and I'm thinking, I'm buying half of years. Yeah. But it meant I could go up there mm-hmm. because they had moved into a drug dealing and, and that was bigger than the gangs, mm-hmm. you know what I mean, and that was a real big downfall for me because I could go up to get acid and none of the rest of them could. It meant I could start putting a wee bit on the drugs mm-hmm. to to recompense me, and it was amazing how many of my mates get annoyed at me doing it. But same; I've got to pay for mine somehow, mm-hmm. and so so that would be it. And that that was that then. So. <laughs> I did work as a butcher, done six months as a butcher. As soon as the six months was up, it was at the door. Next one, please. It really was like that. I was good at the butchers, absolutely loved it. I got my two only experiences as 16-year-old to escape Easterhurst. I, I
1: think there was a down like, Northampton
0: somewhere. and Southampton, funnily enough, old Brockenhurst. Uh, I and it was brilliant and it was it was normal teenage life. Mm-hmm. And it's only now that you really experience that. I never experienced anything that my daughters are getting to experience it. You know? mm-hmm. It really was not I'm no you know, apologizing and pity pitying me for it. But it helps me understand a lot. When I see some young guys that's gone through that, they know you understand that. They've no gone through normal experiences that we need to mature. And uh, so I got there to the two escapes, but I get just get caught up in that side of the drugs. And it was never about making money. I loved the buzz in the lifestyle. Absolutely loved it. Which was my downfall. When it came to drugs, I ended up with times I was taking up to seven LSD a day. It was another world of just it was an alternate universe, there's no way you're in it. Take speed, when you take any upper, you also start then taking other drugs like temazepam and that for the donor to get asleep and fight in it. And uh, you would sit and have these incredible conversations with other guys that were stone, kind of mental, but you really would sit and philosophise about some of the greatest stuff going you know, on. And, and, uh, but it was such an escape mm-hmm. from what was normal life in a scheme. Our our normal life, bear in mind, there's still a lot of, you know, more than 24,000 of these kids are no involved in this at all. But it was such, once I was in it, that was it. And it's that the West of Scotland thing, I always took as much as I could, as fast as I could to get stoned as I could, which meant swallowing, or even when I started on speed snorting, it wasn't enough for me. I had to, so very, very quickly I moved on into injecting uh, before, you know, all this was in my 16th. Such a massive decline just in my 16th year.
1: And how, like, so you talk a little bit about how that changed your personality or changed you, like, as a person, like, because I guess it just numbs you, does it? You just kind of become so focused on yourself that you...
0: It, it, you don't even think about it in those terms. You, you think about it in the terms of getting your next six. So you still hung out with other guys. But I, I, I think I seen myself even marry alone, as a loner in a crowd and feeling very, very different. Now, the reality is, that like, as you come to faith, you begin to understand that everybody sort of feels that way anyway. Yeah. But it's one of the great lies and tricks of the devil is that you feel you're the only one experiencing that so you don't talk about it and you withdraw mere and more into yourself and it became about getting the next fix or the next buzz Mm -hmm. out of the lifestyle. But I had some really, really good friends and we did have a lot of good times which is part of the problem. You know, drug addiction isn't always a train spot and, you know, vision of it where it's all madness and chaos because otherwise we wouldn't keep coming back after it. It was the lifestyle around it the hanging out the drives to there's still no part of it. that
1: community isn't there it? like it's the community of people who are using for sure but there's still that sense of we're here together was uh, quite
0: just... a strong community uh, especially those early days the, you know the teen years when once heroin hit Easterus because heroin wasn't a part of Easterus, even the drug dealers kept it out because they didn't want the heat that it would bring for the police you know so they were quite happy it was like things like 10 which was a pharmaceutical morphine based painkiller which is what we took for years and things like that but it was, a, it was quite a good community as well. We didn't we hadn't started ripping each other off or anything like that. We, we sat and we got high together. We got stoned together. We sat on hussies together. The gang fighting became a bit less And You know, I watch a lot of agencies taking credit for killing the gangs. They didn't. Drugs killed the gangs. Because more people got, like me, copped on to the fact. It's, what, it's one of these big hits I have. More people like me copped on to the fact. If I'm fighting them, I can't go and score. Yeah. I need to score drugs more than I need to fight them. And as that became more more prevalent, the gang fighting, by its very nature, tailed away because you started to be pals with the guys that you used to be trying to hit the baseball bats. So, but I it came it a more insular world. Uh, and
1: so, would all of your friends at that point, all of your community, be hanging out with yeah. people you would all be using together?
0: Through? No, no community outside the guys that was taking drugs. And most of them had a fear of my dad. So, whereas a lot of the other houses we could go to, those houses, nobody came to mind. Mm-hmm. Nobody would even come and chat my door. So there was always that where I had to make sure, as much as I could, that that life was separated from home life. You know what I mean? Because what the the consequences of the two coming together would be... Which is like,
1: we'll get on with being another part if it's too long, but how we minister in that. But one of the things we've always been saying is that because that's the case, if we want to see someone come out of that, you need to be a community for them, don't you? Because you can't just be like... Well, that's fine. Stop taking drugs and come here on a Sunday morning and you'll, you'll be fine. Yeah, I've had,
0: a, is... I've had some good conversations with pastors on that very thing where they'll say, a member a few years ago, I won't mention the church because, you know, we're all on a of learning to deal with it, we're all broken to different degrees. But it was about, well, how do we get them to stop convinced on a Sunday? And I was like, well, of why? <laughs> and, well, you know, they're upsetting people. I said, well, tell the people it's getting upset to find another church. You know, because that was, I hadn't really learned grace <laughs> and my conversations at that point, but it was the truth that was right. So if you want to reach out to the broken, they don't have the capacity to come straight. They don't have the capacity. I bet surely they can trust God. And I says, well, maybe the question you should be asking your congregation is, surely they should be trusting God to be able to deal with them. And I says, it's a journey. I says, and as that goes on, we call it discipleship, but you can't tell someone that's just wandered into a church Here's what we're going to do. We're going to teach you and train you to walk in righteousness because it's so frightening to somebody whose only thought through their whole addiction has been, I mean, that's why my book's called completely the Tenor. How do I get my next fix? It's so alien to them. But what you need to do is show them something that's far more worthwhile. And if that means you have to shut up the moaning minis and the moaning maxis at the back, then, you know, you know and it's churches have to decide if they want to reach the most broken, there's a cost associated with it. And it's it's a, it's a cost, not in the terms of the finances that's involved in it, but in the in the terms of how you're going to upset people who just want to come to church and sing songs on mm-hmm. a Sunday. And and I, I think
1: that's great. We'll get on to that as well. Um, so you're kind of mixed up in that. What is your relationship with your family like at that stage? Then?
0: I think we were all in, if we speak it out, it's real. Mm-hmm. But I, I was arrested for drugs when I was 18, so that, mm-hmm. you know... And those years, I was getting arrested left, right and centre for things like getting caught with offensive weapons and <coughs> breaches of the peace, you know, the, the, the police is a uh, cure-all for anybody they couldn't actually deal anybody for. And uh, by the way, just so Police Scotland know, some of the young guys wore it as a badge of honour the way they do, I suppose, it didn't have the effects you thought it would have. Uh, so the family life was becoming broken. I mean, I distanced myself into it. I didn't mix. I never sat in the sitting room. We used to always, my mum would always family there at half five. Every, you know, tenement house, we had a dining table and in the sitting room because you had no dining room. My room, that was it. You know, I'd come home from work, I'd be my room. Then I'd go get drugs and hang out and do what we're doing. And then I'd come back at night, i go into my room and I had a catch on my door my room door was locked. <coughs> Excuse me. And that was my life. I, ju- I just, you know... And that sense of interaction didn't happen. Uh, just to sort of maybe sum up that part was Christmases. Because, you know, one of my first blog posts was a tale of three Christmases and where it was a kid and that memory. Mum and dad take me down the barras and that all excitement about picking my present, a scale electric set, and the one day and how exciting that was to Christmas. If I wasn't working, I was in my room and that was it. And I wasn't coming out. And one Christmas in particular where my sisters hammering on the door all the way and sweeties were on top of the wardrobe and all that in my room and I just I wasn't interested in interaction to my first Christmas and the 19th challenge and how uncomfortable but life-changing that actually was because mm-hmm. it was uncomfortable that first Christmas in a Christian environment, you know what I mean? But that probably sums up how the addiction side went and I had tried to I'd done methadone twice, first time it was because i discovered if I say the right words to the drug counsel they would tell my doctor to give me drugs <laughs> And again, I've had conversations with people in charge of drug policy in Glasgow since then, and they don't get that addicts are manipulative and want stuff for nothing. Okay. They, they don't get it. But you were all—I remember the woman that was in charge at that time of drugs policy in Glasgow. She used to be my social worker and my drug worker, and she says, "But you were always hanging around I Says that's because I knew if I said the right things, you'd phone my doctor." I says, I'm in "A many a many urine tested, I feel, and yet I still kept getting my prescription." And she looked shocked, and I says. You're going to have to grab a hold of the fact you're working with manipulative people that are always going to get what they want and let you think it's your idea. Sure. The second time I was more serious, I'd done methadone for 12 months, started off on uh, 10 months, started off on 80ml, mm-hmm. and every two weeks I was cut down 5ml. Easter Health Centre, still the same fantastic lady that works there, that was it. when I go in for my brother's prescription talk to her. Uh, but I ended up, I was doing the 2 mil. I never touched another drug the second time I was on it. They put it into a funnel so it would look... But I was as addicted on the 2 mil as I was on it 80. Because nobody was teaching me how to live beyond addiction. There was no scope of it. And I remember phoning my counsellor the day after I'd just done that. And he says, what is it? And I says, right, I'm finished now, what did I know?" And he says, what do you mean? I says, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, my life's revolved around my next fix. Methadone's been my next fix, what did I know?" I was working, it was insecurity with all the carnage that that broke, but I was working. Uh, I, I that more of a semblance of a functioning addict in the sense I wasn't going about and sticking needles in for heroin or anything like that at that time. But they had no answers to, for me. There was nothing that could fill the void. So I did the only thing I knew, which is up to you, my mate. He sold heroin, so obviously it was a mate and bought a bag of heroin. I, because I was so deflated, and it's hard to get across the sense of. You, you, you think you're close to victory. You think that you're getting there and that that last fix is gone with a sense of euphoria to be presented with a nothingness. No coping mechanisms, no... It's one area where train-spotting and everyone who else gets it bang on in the scene where the baby dies, and the, the mother goes and has a fix. And I remember people being shocked by it, and go, but that's how we do it. If you won the lottery, you go and have a fix. If your mother died, you go and have a fix. There is no other way of doing life other than that. And. I was so deflated that day when they had nothing in the, in the sense of life to offer me. And it went rapidly downhill after that. I mean really badly, worse than it had ever been. I was so fed up.
1: And then so it ended as you said in your 30 second clip of a, a gun in the back of your back all that unravel.
0: Security companies, I started off very good one, but I'm a community business that. security, really good business, ran really well, made a difference to these ten people like myself, worked with them. But more and more gangsters began to be involved in the security scene, the very territorial thing. And uh, I was working for a company and uh, two guys who wanted, who were newbies on the scene that wanted to prove they were as hard as some of the real hardcore gangsters that was there. Uh, so, through a whole load of nonsense, they assumed I was stealing off one of the sites. It was actually quite a good gap. Uh, they assumed I was stealing off one of the sites. Didn't know like anything at the time, but they've picked me up uh, late on Friday night, bought me in the car. I didn't even cop on when they told me to sit in the front seat. You, you know, the, the, the reason for that was something like, oh, I need to go out first, so. Then they've took me out to an agricultural show and we're sitting in the car. So there'd been some sort of conversations, but there'd been no change in the atmosphere of And it really was out of the blue, where the, all of a sudden I'm feeling this ramming into my back. And the guy behind me, has started c- cursing and sweating, it's effing jammed, it's effing jammed. And I'm like, so I, I'm like, I mean, I'm aware, my bag's there, right? And things have changed. When I go to the site, the first thing I did was off to the toilets to have a fix, that was, you know, mm. that was it. And that's what I'm thinking, like, wait a minute, um, it, it's mental to think, here's a guy shouting and cursing about a gun, and I'm, how am I going to get out of this, you know, mm. no, because my life's in threat, but get I need fixed. a fix. Yeah. And so they're gone, they're gone, and, and it's like my move kicked into gear, and I couldn't even tell you the words I say, but it was like. And so what had happened was there was a, a, a serious de-escalation of the situation. But that's because I had fucking heroin, in a set of works in the, and I said I worked something, and it really was that. And they took me in to this building site. It was actually an office building in Wellington Street, it's still there. It was in the finishing stages. And I, I, I know it sounds mental, and people have said to me since, "How do you know how the gun's loaded?" I don't. And I wasn't. You know, you're not asking, and it yeah. doesn't no matter what. I wasn't. It was like a badly written movie couple of weeks before, one of the boys for the area, never done anything wrong, had a gun stuck, and he's mouthed by them. So the threat was real, the gun was real, and all the rest of it. But they dropped me over this site with this other guard on this Friday night. And that was it. We'll be back to see you in the morning. Or you better not go anywhere sort of stuff. And I'm like, And it was still so surreal. But it was so surreal that I stopped thinking about the fix. And I am and says to this guy, you want a cup of coffee? I was not. No, I've got coffee because I always had coffee in my bag. That was that. Your bag had your wee TV monitor, your works with your drugs in it, your coffee, your cup, your milk, and your Weetabix in your pot noodle. That was that. That's all you need. <coughs> but every day was the same, excuse me. <laughs> so guy says to this guy, You want a cup of coffee? I said, I've got coffee here. Aye. But don't give me any more than three grains because any more than that's too strong. Remember? What? <laughs> And and, at him, and I think that probably shook me more thinking they're going. So I'm on a building site, a fucking maniac. But I left the site very early that morning. I says, "Mate, I'm just going up to the shop, and that was it." And I went back, and you know, a whole series of events. But that Monday, that was the Saturday. That Monday, I was put in touch with a pastor for the team char- that worked yeah, with a team challenge.
1: Right, so that's so hopefully part one. It's probably yeah. four hours, but I've been loving this. So I don't even really know what time it is. Pizza. <laughs> wow. Well, Part Sorry. two. No, no, good. <laughs> um So part two is the so obviously you painted a picture of the it, despair and brokenness and mess um, that your life was. I also love how through the book you've consistently said this is my fault. Like no. I've made choices. It's not like yes you've been dealt a brutal hand in many ways, and, yeah. but also. This is my fault. Like that—that's that's true. Is that what you're saying? Does yeah, that, there's a I, sense of ownership, certainly.
0: Yeah, and it's part of obviously you know Scotland is facing a drugs crisis, a drugs epidemic that's worse than I've ever experienced. I do remember when I was growing up, what you know the the, the the figures that year was something at like fifty-one, but I knew thirty-one of them. Mm-hmm. But I, I I think there's there's one of the problems we have just now is enabling addicts by making them the poor victims, mm-hmm. and I'm not talking about what causes the person to turn to drugs. And you know, you see somebody going, you know, I've heard the story of Andy Murray and then Blaine and how one boy ended up with child pornography whereas Andy Murray ends up, you know, number one tennis champ. we different, it's different people. But I think there's too much of allowing addicts to be victims instead of saying, look, ultimately you're still responsible for choosing to react by taking drugs. And I, I had always set out that I wanted to show that I was responsible regardless and irrespective of what's going on about me. I was responsible for how I reacted because that's reacting to circumstances no responding which is what discipleship's about yeah, yeah. but I reacted to the circumstances in a very negative manner which was never ever going to get me out, it was only going to ever make the circumstances worse like a, I don't
1: know if you've read the Ed Welch addictions books, the Banquets in the Grave no. um, it was really helpful for me he would talk about it as any addiction, so not just drugs, yeah. we're all addicts of something, um, but as like voluntary slavery yeah. so it's that sense that they, there was a choice there yeah. but there comes a point when you're just enslaved to all the choices you've made yeah. and all the situations you're in, and it's like, how on earth do I get out of this? I, um, yeah. I thought that was a... Yeah, no, like I'd agree I with
0: saying. that. And, you know, I, I know what you'll get certain organisations working with people on addiction and life-controlling problems and they'll call it a disease. And so I'm very careful. Again, these are people on the outside looking in. And we want to blame circumstances other than our own participation in it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Whether you agree with the government responses and how to deal with it or not, it's neither here nor there. But we are giving ways to lessen the impact on both ourselves and others. And addiction is the same. The problem is that why you, you, you know why you're enslaving yourself. It's like the old biblical talking about a bond servant, a slave that's been set free, but then chooses mm-hmm. to submit back to the master. Uh, and that is what you're doing, it's that willingly. Mm-hmm. And you do it for something as simple as chasing after the next fix. Mm-hmm. And one of the best examples I can give, we'll come back to a bit, to start, when I was in Teen Challenge, you know, after I'd been there, completed the program, I was involved in the ministry team at to Churches, and I remember, probably meeting about four or five hundred, excuse me, in the congregation, and I'm listening to one after another of them coming up with these different reasons of why they took drugs. And I remember thinking, I, you know, I was a preacher that night, and I remember thinking, I don't know about you, but I can't relate to anything they said. <laughs> no, for some of them, it was very genuine. Mm-hmm. They had been through horrific circumstances in their childhood. I said, I can't relate to any of them. I took drugs because I wanted to. Every single fix I took because I chose to took it. I was a slave to it, but I was still a willing participant." <laughs> And if I was to take heroin tomorrow, it would be because I wanted to. I says, and here's the thing you don't hear many people saying. I enjoyed being stoned. I loved it. I would walk, I mean, I walked from uh, the the shopping centre, now the locks, uh, shopping centre, across what was basically a piece of grassland with trees, which is now Glasgow Fort, up to Gatharmuk to score a bag of heroin in minus 20 degrees in a T-shirt. Because I wanted what was on... And it's amazing, we'll walk across hot coals. We'll walk across the city to get what we want. It's such an overwhelming compulsion. And I know that experts, and I'm doing that deliberately because apparently I'm not an expert in it. I know that's the some of the conversations that was going on last year. I'm not an expert. I have lived-in experience. So I don't know what I'm talking about. And I know that experts will say, yeah, that's part of the neurology. Yeah, that's right. You're rewiring your brain. It's the shortcut for the reward system. But the great thing is, as we know, is there is a way for your brain to be rewired again. Yeah. If you've rewired it once to bypass the body's reward system, it can be done again, which is what addiction is. Mm-hmm. You're taking a body's natural response to reward hard work. Okay. You're by- using drugs to bypass it. And so what it means is, <laughs> what we don't want to do is go back to the hard way of feeling the euphoria of the body's reward system. Yeah. You know, we, we want to take the easy You're way the out. Yeah.
1: So how did then that change come about? So the first part was how you kind of get into that. What changed and what led you to Teen Challenge and kind of started you on the journey out of that?
0: Well, God's a better manipulator than me. (laughs) It's as simple as that. So my friend, who sadly passed away a few years ago, had been in the Haven Kilmacoma, which was under Teen Challenge at that time, uh, for six weeks, about six months before at Christmas, but he'd left. uh, So they lived next door to us, so we're still in tenements. We're in Irving Street at this point. And my mum said, so on the Sunday, so the Saturday is the day that I quit my job, and I've always said, you know, your boss wants to shoot you, it's time to quit. On the Sunday, caught up in some stuff, but I promised my mum, in trying to get the tenner, that that was, I wasn't going back, I'd had enough and all that, again, whatever it takes to get the money. (coughs) Excuse me. And then, so on the Monday, though, my mum says, right, come on. I let you know, so my words had caught me out. So she says, phone your counsellor. And I phoned my counsellor and I think, you know, that was great because I knew how to play my counsellor. Yeah. And uh, But I never get an answer. And my mum says, well, I may go to Genie next door for that place Jim was. And I'm just thinking, so what's going on is, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, it's like the sat-nav in my mind is trying to work out. I had a fiver because I bought Valium on the Sunday rather than heroin, which allows you to get a sleep and you still feel the withdrawal. So I'm like, all right, she does that. I just need to pretend that I'm on this so that I can somehow get a fiver, right?
1: Because you need a tenor. I need a tenor. I
0: need to complete the tenor. That was my whole thought. So I would be sitting in a conversation like this, I would know how much I had in my pocket and I would know how much I needed. And that was what every conversation was about. How do I complete the tenor? And so she went next door to Jeannie and she came back in and says, oh, was she no in? She says, no, she says she's going to have a look for it. So the next thing she comes in with her card and it says, never forget, Pastor Ken Prasad, Uh, she's an Assemblies of God pastor. Uh, but he also worked along, alongside Teen Challenge, but his trucks was in Castle Milk, another scheme. So my mum says, you are I'm like, I'm a phone and I don't know how to deal with this. No addict likes to feel that the circumstances, so we're talking about slavery, but no addict likes to feel that the, the journey to getting the money is getting out of control. Mm-hmm. It's, it's quite uncomfortable. Anything, outside the norm. I could see four weeks into my future because I knew what every day was going to look like, right? So this was a bit out of my comfort zone and I was a wee bit troubled by it, so... No, my youth I'm 27 year old my mum to make these calls for me do you know what I mean but she phoned the guy dropped everything he was there I think this was like half nine quarter to ten in the morning he was there by 11 o'clock so we're sitting in the living room and you know in the house and uh, Ken says you want your parents to be here and I'm like, aye aye because I'm wanting them to see that I'm <laughs> playing the part here and my mum's like no I'm going to leave you to it and I'm like this isn't, you know, and I used to remember the old sat when they just came out at first, and you took a wrong turn and see at the bottom recalculating, <laughs> and you'd see you like got fifty thousand routes for <laughs> a two-mile journey, and that's my brain's working. out. I'm short-circuiting here. What? Trying to? How do I figure this out? So, so Ken's he's talking away and blah blah, blah and telling me that he's making all these promises about getting me into rehab and the Teen Challenge bus, which had always sat outside the needle exchange, which was in Health Center. I've been on it once. I was, a, I, mean, I was in a terrible state at this point my skin was all broken hair was away out there I had a beard away down there this beard is a wee bit better ground than it <laughs> was then I wouldn't even change my socks. anything that got in the way for me waking up and going looking for money I couldn't be annoyed with and I'm sitting here and he's saying all that stuff and it's sort of getting in and it's no but I heard him say we we'll are go and try and get you into rehab in seven days I didn't know at that time when the teen challenge on done was six weeks mm-hmm. you know and having to show up at the bus didn't know any of that but I'm just sitting thinking how can I work this So he went away, and I have to be honest, I wasn't that bad after he left. My mum's sitting, talking, making plans, and I'm just thinking, I need to get, that's what I'm thinking. But I started to get very agitated. I mean, it wasn't even that my body was strong, it should have been. I hadn't had any heroin since the Saturday, this was Monday. I had never gone a day without it in years. And so, you know, but it was like a a psychological craving at that point. I've no head I need to have. Mm And my mum said, "Do you want me to phone that guy? It was out of the day, and it was like you know the sat nav kicks in. That's it. We've got a, we've got a route, aye. Because I'm thinking I'll get him to tell my mum to give me a tenner and all that, right? And that was in the good old days when the phone was out in the hall on the phone <laughs> table. So my mum phoned him first. I mean, shockingly, embarrassed, but she phoned him first. And I came onto the phone. And you know what? It's funny because in all the times I've talked about what happened next, I forgot about this part. To Ken was up. He's pastor in Notting Hill Community Church in London now. But he came up on the 20th anniversary and told me, I says, you come onto the phone, he says, and he, he, he says you're all right, so oh, I can't do this, this is too hard, He says, you're doing all that. He says, I don't remember that. For some of the, you know, people say you get amazing memory, it's amazing <laughs> what we choose to forget. But I'll never forget what he did say to me was, can I pray for you? Never tried to counsel me, never tried to calm me doing the rank He just says, Can I pray for you? And I can't but remember a word of what he prayed, and I'm quite glad. I can't remember because I'd probably try and pray with every addict yeah. the same prayer. But I'll never forget that I can remember clearly. I can picture even the wallpaper I hung up the I says, thanks, hung up the phone, walked into the sitting room. So there's my mum, my dad, and my sister. And I says, oh, I'm sorry. Right? And my dad went, heard it all before because he hid. And my mum went, no, look at him, he's different. You no, know, I'm no feeling different. I'm no thinking different. I'm oblivious to the fact that I'm no thinking I need a fiver. Mm-hmm. I'm totally oblivious to that. But it was to the point that like an hour later, and it was Ken again when he was up, he says, Do you not remember calling me back an your later? I says, No. He says, No. He says, Your mum made you phone me back an your later because you were all right. And I thought, Well, my mum's no patronizing or anything like that. So, and I, I remember then, I, so once, you know, it's like memory how that. So, what had happened was I was so all right that my mum says, You know what? I phoned that guy back and told him you're all right. Now, only an hour after that. And I went, nah, man, I don't want to waste his time. Do you know what I mean? She says, I think you should phone him and tell him you're all right. And I was like, don't be stupid. And I phoned him. And he says, I'm going to get Roy Louise to come out and see you tomorrow night. He says, Roy, the bus will be there on Tuesday night. I'm going to get Roy to come out and see you. But it was so surreal because I had stopped thinking about getting a fix. But I would stopped thinking to the point I wasn't aware, obviously, yeah, that I stopped thinking about it. Roy Louise came out to see him the Tuesday night. He talked about this last day, Susan Harley. I didn't know Susan, but I knew her brother and I knew her dad. Her brother was the guy I had most recently hung out with doing drugs, one of the nicest guys you would ever meet. So he was telling me, Susan went in a year ago, she's doing really well, and I'm thinking, oh, that's where she went, right? And that that, that was the first spark of, oh, all right, if this works, then, because I've never done rehab. And I thought, all right, we'll have a think about this. And so the next day, the Wednesday, I remember, beautiful, it was me, it was beautiful. I remember thinking, that's really nice. I'm going to go a walk, No thinking like my family are in tenor weeks here. Yeah, yeah. And I remember saying only two weeks before I'm in, my sister says put down the road, and I'm trying to get money. And I remember I was going to jump through the window when they had tried to do an intervention on bare feet, <laughs> right? Because they were trying to stop me getting out. So this was only a couple of weeks before. And I remember when my sister says you get that door, don't come back. I just went oh, all right, then, and I just sat down, just get a cup of tea. <laughs> I, I know it's 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 mental because. It's not the normal experience for people.
1: I and think that's with God then?
0: Oh, absolutely, but I'm not aware. Nobody's preached to God. Ken never preached the gospel to me. He just offered to pray. Mm. And it goes against a lot of how we think we're supposed to act. We forget that God is much bigger and sees the end from the beginning. And that God knew what the next, that weekend was going to be like for me. And so the Thursday, which was my dad's birthday, we've forgotten all about it. Never made a fuss, I reckon. Ken shows up, 12 o'clock, in a white car, and that was it. These were goodbyes. get into the car and I forget, I've looked and there was a sense in me, I'm not coming back. It was just that sort of and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't melodramatic or anything like that. It was just I'm not coming back. I was sort of knew it. And then Ken says, Do you mind if I put some Christian music on and then I'm what looking, I'm what? Looking. And it was, you know, we'd a fantastic minister of the early years. Uh, John Cook, I used to always think he was drunk. I only found out recently he had a hearing impairment, so he spoke. Okay. He quite a heavy thing. Brilliant minister, loved in the community. But I'm still thinking about the church organ and tambourine and that sort of thing. And he put on, and I think it was Hill songs, but this would have been Hill songs like 1990 day, style. Yeah. It was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going, well, that's all right. <laughs> and we drove and you took me to The Haven. Uh, the Haven I'd been by two weeks before, I think I touched on it in the book. I'd been at a site in Bay the security and I I needed a fix. And one of there's no knowing that I needed it. He probably did know, but he says, look, I can take you as far as Paisley. And we drove by the Haven, again, a couple of weeks before going, oh, that's and it. it says, the sign then says, uh, the Haven Teen Challenge, uh, Men's Christian Disciple, Christian Training Centre. Was that, didn't they say? And oh, that's funny, that. So when Ken's having, I just passed by this two weeks ago, I've never driven in this road other than that. And we went in, and then the manager there was a guy called Finn Moffat, who graduated just a couple of weeks before. And a really defining moment in my life used to happen. So I was meant to go into the Haven on the Thursday and go down to Wales, the men's centre, on the Monday. So it was funny, Finn's got me in and out. And the Haven at that point is very polished now, but it was like basically a farm cottage where mm-hmm. a wee bit of work done. And Finn was like, right, you know, talking away and all the rest of it. <coughs> he says, You got your deposit. I says, What deposit? He says, Deposit for a bus. Mate, am Am I gonna get money for a bus fee You know, and it was all these things. I'd never been in this sort of surreal situation. And then he says to me, he, he called me back in, and he says, "Sure, we're thinking about keeping you here for your induction, which is four weeks." I says, "I'm not staying here." He says, "What?" I says, "I'm going." I say, "I've got a place down in Wales, mate." I says, "You keep me here the first time it's bad, I'll be up the road." And again, I'm not thinking like an addict. It's like there's there's a, a knowledge. It says. It's mad because you can over-describe it in a sense, but it was like I was making decisions that I never had the maturity to make. Do you know what I mean? Uh, And then he showed me again. But then he says these words to me. He says, Stuart, he says, you're no longer a junkie, you're no longer an addict. He says, you're a student. He says, you're not a Christian because you've not chosen to be. He says, but you're here to learn the word of God 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, whether you like it or (laughs) not. I thought he was exaggerating, but it never really dawned on me the full effect of what that says to me. It took away the excuse that I used through the past 13, 14 years. We're completing the ten. I was everything. My addiction was everything. I can't help it. I need it. All that. He said, "You can't use that as an excuse anymore. It's new about moving forward." So that was that, and that was one of the things where I love about the Teen Challenge Ministry. Still do. You're told when you go through the door, that door slammed on you. You can go and crowbar it open if you want, but that's not what it's about. We're not going into your past, looking for excuses we into your future looking for promise, and that's what we're taught. And uh, So I, I went down to Wales, he says, right, he says, eh, you're going to Wales tomorrow. <laughs> I got into Wales at half past twelve on a Friday night, almost to the minute, a week after I got the gun stuck in my back. It's I at a converted supermarket, and you know, when I walked through the doors, it's a funny story I can do, but time won't allow me even to get into the story of the guy I went down with. But when I walked through the back door at that time of night, for the first time in my life, I felt home. And I didn't understand it, I'd never been. But going through a back door, even though I was going through the search and my bag's been set, the peace in me. Still nobody preached the gospel. The peace in me though was incredible. It really was. I just thought, you know that relief you get? That sense that everything's right. First time in my life, ever. It's also awesome like,
1: I guess, to look back, we would use theological terms now but to see God's hand of providence Aye. in all these ways yeah. that He is like He's directed to this. You've yeah. seen this before, you said that the money came, that you're meant to wait six weeks to get in the team challenge six weeks. Wait, so you're supposed to week?
0: go to visit a bus and visit a local church once a week for six weeks to show that you're serious,
1: but you got in in a week. Oh, yeah, yeah, which is clearly of the yeah. Lord as well. But it?
0: yeah, I asked Ken about that and he says, Well, I didn't care. He says, You were the last guy in Glasgow I worked with, I was moving to London the following week. He says, But we knew I had talked to him. He says I'd really pushed it, and we knew that this was a now moment. I says "See if I'd been told six weeks, I'd be dead." There's no way around it because I wouldn't have waited six weeks. Mm. I, it was—I never had the mentality of the patience for that. you know what I mean?
1: So you're dying in Wales in the program, like. I'm, so I don't know. I've been learning a wee bit more of a team Challenge recently, um, which I find really helpful. Like, and it's very Christian. So you, as you say, you're there. You're it's a training centre, whatever they call it. Like, yep. clearly you're not. Like, You didn't know the gospel, hadn't heard the gospel, weren't like you hadn't chosen to follow Jesus. Yeah. Like, so what are you thinking there? Are you like, these are a bunch of weird Christians? Why am I here? Or did it like
0: well? I think if you go into a, a Christian place as a non Christian, you should think they're weird, you should think they're mad. What well, even we see that in the day of Pentecost, you should think they're drunk, and if you don't, then there's something wrong. <laughs> Do you know <laughs> what I mean? But no, I went in, so bearing in mind, John Macy, who was the national director of Teen calls it what the, the, the addict is a perfect chameleon. They learn how to blend in to the environment but i went in that day and the next morning was sort of weird where you begin the adaptation process to fit to do the chameleon Mm -hmm. to fit in with what's going on because you have to get your footing you have to try and suss out what's going on but it was kind of weird and i'll never forget and you know i developed a devotional based on this first morning quiet time i'm going to to sit in a lounge with 20 odd other guys I'm handy that I used Bible and I'm told I need to sit in the sofa for 15 minutes, and you turn around and see your other guys with the day, and I went shh because you get a white ticket at that time, which is a report to your of a counselor for talking. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. Do you know what I mean? That's how we get our guys at the quiet times.
1: Spit
0: down shot, But it was like you know, it was one I don't know what to do. And so it was, you know, it was that sort of surreal. And there was some fantastic stuff that happened that first morning. That you know, on reflection mm-hmm. and with the theological terms. I mean, when I tell a story, I try and notice why I don't. I know where uh, Messi's fantastic book about when he talked about the sexual abuse, mm-hmm. he's brilliant at bringing the theology through. I very deliberately tried not to do that mm-hmm. because I wanted to try and write to, as yeah, it as yeah. it was at the time. And it's a story, so, it isn't it? For reflection. Sure. I own that. But it was surreal. But I still wasn't looking for a fix. Mm-hmm. It was mental to try and describe it. I was. Thinking like an addict in the sense of well, I'm in this situation, how do, you know? Mm-hmm. No, knowing what it was. <laughs> Basically, I'm thinking, who uh, the heck did I get here? Which comes up then when somebody else offers to pray for me this Sunday night, and I thought, wait a minute, the last time somebody prayed for me, what's
1: going to happen next
0: week? <laughs> I just <landed> a fiver. <laughs> <laughs> but that was what the effect of Ken's prayer had on me, which has been lifelong. Mm-hmm. Where I learned pray first, thought later. Mm-hmm. So not, it was because of that. And, uh, you know, no try to outdo God at thinking we're better at counselling than he is at moving through prayer. <laughs>
1: That's awesome. So how did you then come to hear the gospel like really start to see what it is to be a Christian yeah. and not just drug-free? So,
0: Well coming in at the weekend was an advantage because it gave me a little breathing space you know to get used to the atmosphere without being put straight into class mm-hmm. and Teen Challenge are good They have that four-week induction period to let you do that but I went to City Temple, City Temple's is the Swansea Elam church where all the guys went, all the girls went. Five, six hundred, very strong church. Uh, Phil was also the chairman of the Teen Challenge at that time, he's the chief executive now. And I have to be honest, so we go there, it's a 15, 15 mile journey. Go there in the morning, I'm sleeping, I mean, bearing in mind, I've spent the past how many years where I'm awake all night and sleeping all day. Mm-hmm. So I suddenly, I'm expected to go up at quarter past seven in the morning and go to bed at half ten at night. So at half ten in the morning for Sunday service, I couldn't tell you a thing about it. The Sunday evening service, I'm sitting there, Phil's preaching, I'm pretty sure it was a phenomenal gospel message. Uh, Chris Ruson doing the worship, I'd never seen a worship band in church. Chris Ruson to this day, I still think he's one of the most gentle, humble worship leaders I've ever had the experience. i mm. uh, sitting in, you know, one of these guys who just play the first keys and you're in heaven. And uh, and I know that Phil preached a gospel message, can't tell you anything about it, but he'd done an altar call, now bear me, I've no experience of this, mm-hmm. I've never encountered anything like this, but he'd done this altar call, and I'm trying not to think in terms that I would use now, but there was a desire in me to respond, mm-hmm. I, I needed to, so, you know, obviously that was calling people up to respond to what Phil had spoke on, I wanting to respond to something I hadn't heard, yes. it was weird. But I needed to and the, the desire to do it was overwhelming. And I've spoken to one of the staff members, a guy called Phil Winstanley, Stanley, sitting next and says, Can I go? And I still think I'm the only Teen Challenge student in the history of Teen Challenge to be refused to attend an call. because he says not. He's looked at the other No, no, because I'm the new guy. I'm only just in. So they're trying to make sure that I'm safe. But I'm yeah. so what happened was I went they took me back to the centre, Pastor Robert Hughes is there. Uh, gentle, gentleman, ex soldier a really godly apostolic minister, something about the old school apostolics like that, and in his office. And I says to him what I was experiencing. And you know, you're trying to put words to something you don't know. And I says, I just feel that I need to. And he says, well, do you want a prayer? Do you want me to pray? And that was when I'm like, well, that word prayer again. And I says, oh, I don't know what to say. And it wasn't being facetious. It wasn't even when Ken had offered to pray where I was trying to work an angle. I just genuinely didn't know, but I wasn't scared. And so I couldn't even tell you the words he said. So we're not even talking about a gospel of understanding sin and redemption at this point. It was just a response to something that the Holy Spirit was doing in me. And he prayed for me. And I said, Amen. And it was like something changed. It wasn't like angels come into the room and all these reasons why a lot of the gospels were banned for the Bible. It was nothing like that. But it was I was aware that all of a sudden my perspective had changed. It was as if... I'd been given a glimpse that I was new involved in something bigger. And it was amazing how even just some of the incidences in the past week were beginning to sort of make sense. And I remember going up to the landing where all the students' bedrooms are. i say, guys, I just gave my life to Jesus. And they're all a big deal, everybody does that. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But I was like, no, seriously. And so, to so, so talk about the gospel, you know, you're going into class and So class for me in a Monday we begin. The Teen Challenge programme is what discipleship should be for any new Christian. It's... You know, it's no make a decision at the altar. That's it. You know, you're saved. That's it. You're going to heaven. It's okay. We need to learn from the promise of inherited. So, the teen challenge group studies is based around things like, uh, "How can I know I'm a Christian?" Which is step by step showing you what the gospel is in a very practical manner. Grown through failure, your obedience to God, obedience to man, successful Christian living, spiritual power in the supernatural. Quite challenging. You get a guy that uh, only uh, some cases weeks before was an addict telling them to write a letter to parents who've uh, just lost their child because some faith preacher told them that God had healed them so that they could stop giving their child medication. Mm-hmm. That's part of the Teen Challenge programme, is that you have to write in a loving, graceful, non-judgmental way how you would speak to those parents. Do you know what I mean? And, uh, so we've through all that in the classes, but every morning we would do a chapel, and every morning there was either a student or a staff member up talking about God's incredible love On Calvary. And it's one of these things where you don't know when it is. I'd already knew it was part of something bigger, but that unfolding and unveiling just how big a deal Mm -hmm. this was. And I think it started to make more sense to me in the light of what Finn had said about you're no longer an addict. So I'm saying you're not a Christian yet. Always got to me. But it was understanding, without understanding, without knowing the terminology or the years of experience. That God had done something absolutely incredible that allowed me to be in a place that didn't look what I thought a rehab would look like. Never, language wasn't what I thought rehab was going to be like, or nothing like it. And actually, the people were so different from anything I'd experienced. And so there was the gradual unveiling, even though there had been the moment of beginning. Mm-hmm. But it, it was—I I, I, don't—I don't think I've ever tried to think about it in such detail. But it was so incredible. Absolutely uh, like, was. Was there then? You were saying like a kind of
1: a gradual dawning of, I guess, what we might say, it's conviction of sin, like an awareness of oh, that's some static, well, that's that happened
0: Sunday night, <laughs> I remember getting into my room the Sunday night. Shared with a great guy from Dublin, and it was like I had been told, "Here's what will happen." So there was this sense of, it's normal teen challenge language. What's going to happen is all the ghosts is going to take you on a journey, right? And they call it the forgiveness journey take you through and it wasn't it so whereas before if I'd went on this I'd have needed to get a fix because the guilt and the shame yeah, had been yeah. overwhelming but it was about dealing with key points and it was funny for me that journal was key defining points there's another one I talk about airplane gaze, where I'm staring up at this boyhood dream that was gone and so key moments like that and understanding that God was giving me this so and, and it was like oh God you know I'm sorry and thinking of the people that had been hurt and upset and so I'm trying to put a 51 year old's mind into a 27 year old's experience all of it, but at no time did I feel condemnation. At no time did I feel. But that started, but it did get harder because bearing in mind, as an addict, anytime you're dealing with a crisis, you have a fix. And it wasn't even that I never had that coping mechanism, but I never even had the awareness of having it, which meant I really was naked. And this, I had nothing to protect me. I had no way out, no escape from it. And I think it's one of the greatest advantages someone that's in addiction has in coming to Christ, is that sense that your coping mechanisms are so obviously wrong that when you know you can't turn to them, yeah. you have no choice but to turn to Christ.
1: And I think there's also something there about when you're aware that your life is a mess, when you're aware yeah. that you are a sinner you've made some stupid choices, you've been rebelling against God and you've been causing a havoc for everybody, and yet Christ loves you enough to die for you. that those two things together just it just magnifies the love of Jesus does not it because it's like i'm like this and you still did that like and it's it's awesome to hear that kind of come through
0: well it's one of the things because bear in mind you go to people in the scheme you know and that's a lot of friends and you say, you know what got me was god loved me Mm. (laughs) and i go look i'm from the scheme i did drugs i did gangs i had done everything that was wrong in life i was so caught up in an unchristian ungodly life you know, I was even with my mouth, I was worse than John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, who even a ship's captain was embarrassed about how much it cost. So I says, I get all that. But it was how practical God's love was shown us to be, mm-hmm. and how we miss out as church leaders if we're not taking the same practical step what ministries like team challenge do, which is discipleship. Because that's the unveiling of God's love. Look, we talk about it as a starting point, but it's not the starting point, it's like what is it? justification sanctification and glorification i have been saved i am being saved i will be saved it's that ongoing yeah. where god's love begins to get inside us as we trust in him and transform and i was aware that that was going on even though i never had the knowledge but it was hard work for the first two weeks
1: yeah. again, i love that because again okay, one of the things we're trying to talk about discipling like is that very much like if this matters in life it's not just that, as you say that yeah. one big altar call moment it does matter and it's gonna be hard, and mm. I, guys, I've spoken to from similar backgrounds. You'd say that like, this moment's great, but the battle gets more intense in yeah. some ways. Like from yeah. that word on. on, um, so it's good to hear that. The other thing I, I kind of clicked from your book is there's a real love of the Bible that kind of came through. Like you're spending a lot of time, like in quiet time and stuff, with the Bible. Like was that did that just come through Teen Challenge or I had
0: good people? Mm. I had good people that just loved the word. I mean, the most maligned book even in church these days, Leviticus. Mm. Jim Stead, whose wife, who's passed away, Jean was a legend. Uh, we're we'll getting distracted with the other keep back yeah, just I just making sure it's okay. Right. The camera's okay. They yeah,
1: were all good. Sorry. Okay.
0: <laughs> no, that's okay. Uh, I was like, missed something
1: while
0: I was doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Let me look at this camera. Life has distractions. <laughs> <laughs> I had good people that showed me, you know, that it wasn't about Old Testament versus New Testament, but it was about Christ. It was about God's love for us seen through Christ. And you, you know the cliches that we take. You know the Old Testament is a New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is Old Testament revealed. You can't have one without the other, and just that absolute love for it. And it was what happened to me. It was why, look, as I say, uh, one of the defining moments for me was when I realised about nine months in that there's something I hadn't thought about, and it was like you know what it's like when you're you're nearly trying to force a thought through into your mind, but you don't know what the thought is. And when it came, it was so overwhelming when, for the first time, I realised that I hadn't really thought about drugs. Smoking is different. There was one episode there. But I hadn't really thought about drugs in about nine months, or about six months in this nine months. And to think about that in the context of what we're going through as a nation, just now how utterly stupid that sounds. But it was the reality of my situation. My wife describes it best when she says... You know, it's like when there's a toddler running around with something dangerous in their hand, you don't draw their attention to the dangerous thing, you offer them something far more appealing. <laughs> and that's what God had done. And we, you know, we say the gospel to the fact that we nearly where a lot of people these days with social media, as soon as they hear the word gospel, they close their mind. Mm-hmm. But actually, here's what had happened was, this new life, even in the confinement of a program, the community side... It was nearly what two New Testament church was like. Conversations were all about the Bible, okay. you know. The dinner table conversation was about the Bible. There had been episodes where getting caught up when another four guys from the east end of Glasgow were there at the same time. But I, I, there was just something grabbed me about it that I wanted to know more. The chapel times, it was the old acetates overheads. I used to go in, to learn what the songs were before chapel time because if I was going to be doing the acetates, I wanted to know what these songs were rather than, you know, doing Christian karaoke. (laughs) Not knocking it, but it was more than about wanting to know the songs. I wanted to know the truths of the songs. And that was it. And I was still a loner. I'd spent a long time wanting security on building sites and nearly perfecting that sense of being distant from people, which Mm -hmm. is the major effect that addiction had on me. I hated people. I don't hate people. I hated being around people because it would allow the reality of how far I had gone to come in. But the classes, they were so practical. It wasn't just, you know, why you say, I know this isn't a Bible, but it wasn't just, let's say, in that first instance, there you go, you're a Christian, go and have life. It was like, teaching us how much truth and how measured and how well engineered the whole Bible was and how its fruit in my life was going to be the the, the unlocking of god's purpose and promise for me
1: which is great and again we were as a church we were looking at philippians with our prayer meetings recently and the whole idea of like i've cut everything a loss from knowing christ like knowing jesus is like the most valuable satisfying thing like in this universe and again you just explained that well haven't you like yeah um, i love that analogy about don't take away the you don't draw attention to it you hear something much more precious and i guess what you are saying is you saw jesus was just the most precious satisfying thing person That um,
0: it was incredible. I mean, be... there was times I used to. What, John Macy again used to. Always, he's one of the most incredible. I know you'll say that, but that was how incredible the people that were around us mm-hmm. were. I mean, these guys had never touched a drink, never mind a drug in their life, mm-hmm. and so that lie about you have to have experienced it to bring truth—it's just complete rubbish. When you know God, you can bring people through experiences you've never started, you've never had. Because it's not the experience you're bringing them out of, it's the experience that you're bringing them out into that counts. David Wilkerson had never touched a drug or drink in his life when they went to a court in New York, and but God, what behind the scenes to the fact they're in 140 countries now, setting guys free left, right, and centre. But I, it, it, it's that, and it, I, you know, you don't want to make it sound very soppy. It was tough. Mm. I mean, I'm talking about about you know the first two weeks, like that going through that stuff, it's great saying that you don't feel condemnation. But you still feel raw. Yeah. When you realise how many times that you've taken advantage of people and you can't hide behind the veil of the stone, you know, uh, it's very raw. And I remember one time about two weeks singing into the chapel, we blew NIV, sort of hard paperback Bible, highlighted here, there and everywhere. And I remember sitting in one of the seats behind the pulpit just at the seats, and just sitting behind there and going, God. You know, I don't you know, it was one of these ones I, I don't know, I can't I can't take this. And I've opened up the Bible, and it's funny because it's the same verse, but Jeremiah 29, 11, and, you know, new experience to me, everybody quotes him, very wrong, I might add, in the most part. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Out of context. That was drummed into us, don't use a verse out of context. Uh, but it was actually 12 and 13, and it says, When you seek me and search for me, well, your heart, I will be found by you, and I will bring you back from captivity, declares the Lord. Uh, Jeremiah's obviously speaking to whole people that's in captivity and saying about it. The, the key wasn't getting caught up in your problems and the solution. The key wasn't getting caught up, and I remember there sitting thinking, "That's me. I just got it. That that's me." And uh, you you know the hymn which we've been singing, "Long, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Then I cast her. Finding, I, I woke. <laughs> I've the words I woke a from, dungeon flame before. The, flight. Flight, yeah. the light. My chains fell around. off. My heart was three-eyed rose. Went forth and followed the." The boy that came into the chapel two weeks after I had made a decision, and the man that left, probably just 15 minutes later, were two different people. It was so incredible. And again, it's just
1: awesome to see I mean that what's a couple of weeks and what the Lord did yeah. there. Like you two weeks ago had no thought about following Jesus, or no, no thought of no leaving this behind nothing, and then God's like, I'm doing something here, yeah. and kind of just pulls in. What was it saying, Jude, like, kind of snatches you from the fire? From the fire. And it's like, you're mine. We're yeah. going to change this. Like, and it, it is
0: the reality. I mean, there's some guys in addiction where it is, like, you know, like it says in Jude or not, we have to be gentle with. Mm. But there are others, like, thankfully, men like Ken Persad, Roy Lees, and those others seen it and me had to be snatched mm. and put into a whole different location. They never argued with me. Finn never argued with me and said, no, you need to stay here. We have decided. Bear in mind, that's what I've had my whole life mm-hmm. from It was everybody else deciding without listening whatever happened with Finn, whoever he spoke with, thought, no, we're hearing what he's saying. So all this was new to me, people were actually hearing me. But to sit there that day, it, it's, you know, it's again, we see that, isn't it, because we see people talking about how the room was filled with a Shekinah glory, again, no really understanding what <laughs> these things are. Huh? And it was like that, but it was a sense of me. It really was like this presence, it was flooded with light. And it isn't like that was their present as an never present but it was one of those moments where you saw through a veil darkly, okay, and, you, and you just got it. And I went up and I changed, and I must have had the biggest grin in my face. But there was moments like that all through. I remember getting into the programme, me, actually a boy no far from here, Ronnie Thornton, we used to take shots each phone in every night saying my head's are wasted. And, and I remember phoning Roy and saying, Roy, look, see when we phone, see as soon as I go, my head's wasted. Or ro- just hang up. You know, we're just working through a bad patch, that's all right. We don't really want to come here. And it was all that learning how to deal mm-hmm. to cut those things off because bear in mind we were good at manipulation. Right? And apparently I phoned that and it with my mum and all. And my brother-in-law was raging, he was like a bit of cheap, but anyway. <laughs> and all, but I I you would pick on the weakest. But the, the, there was there was, I remember one time it was a proper mental health blackout I was going through. I was a bit far into the programme. Evening class was personal study, you studied what you wanted. And I remember, I felt so down. I mean, probably about six months. I just felt, and it was like a cloud of depression coming on me. And I'm walking into the lounge in Teen Challenge. It was quarter past seven. I know because you walked in and the court was there and it's imprinted. And I just, and, and something struck me. I don't have to feel this way. I can, No, I'm not knocking people that are genuinely suffering from clinical depression. Mm. I'm talking about those that know the clouds coming upon and where they're going into. You know, we, we, we we diagnose depression these days so easily when actually somebody's just going through a, a bad time, yeah. and we'll we'll prescribe medication rather than say, you know what, you're going through a bad time, you're going to have to go through it. Yeah. But something again struck me. I, mean, I actually don't have to feel this way. I can choose. Mm-hmm. Noted well on that. And I went back to the class. My friend Mark Gamson, who was a staff member at the time, sitting in front, and he pulled me up and took me. He says, Why are you grinning at? And I, and I says to him, I says, I can't help. I says, I, I says, Mark, if you'd seen me and a couple of other guys just 20 minutes ago. says, it really was. It was like that. And again, it was these we learning the experiences, not to indulge your pain.
1: So I guess the, so that's the kind of part two here is what Jesus was doing, breaking in, saving you, transforming you. Awesome. And then the next part of that is you're then call into that ministry yourself you're given mm-hmm. like preaching opportunities and stuff like yeah um
0: how mental is that what happened <laughs> mental what's god doing does he not know who should be <laughs> no <laughs> i remember the first time paul evans the boss again another really good man uh taught me some really good life lessons and quiet moments and uh but i first time so you would show you the, the ministry team was a bunch of on average 10 guys most of us had been through the program came into places like churches and schools just to share our story, to promote the ministry, but mostly to push the gospel. That was it. It was to present the good news, and we were allowed to go into places where normally, even at that time in the 90s, Christians weren't allowed to go in and be so open. Mm. We would have school teachers using it as uh, saying that they were springing us in to show how to deliver a monologue, you know. All this stuff just to get us in. And, of course, we're naive. We don't realise that most people haven't seen this, yeah. which is good, you know what I mean? We we, we, we thought but it. It was a great... A lot of stuff. One of the chapters in the book I talk about when I was college, uh, primary four and presenting the school play and that moment I loved it. I loved that moment. There was something about it. For me it's God foreshadowing what's to come in that sense. The kind of public speaking. I just yeah. just that. But I, I get to be me and it more than I get to be me even when I'm sitting doing this. <laughs> so I, the, the the real me which is tapping into something which is bigger than me and say to people look I want, I want you to share, which is what preaching should be. Look! Look how a great God is! You know, it should never be, here's a three, I'm not knocking three-point sermons, but it should never be an academic exercise. Neither. It should always be about the greatness of God, the common kingdom, and the teaching, correcting, and rebuking when that's necessary. Do you know what I mean? And uh, But I so we go to do that, travel all over a place where... Uh, you know, and I remember a couple of times when you would get a bit above yourself where at John Macy would say, you know, God's so great that we could put any idiot up there and they would sound <laughs> eloquent and I, church had to be all the time actually. So. <laughs> it's the anointing that breaks it you know, you <laughs> God likes to use idiots Pete, so you know <laughs> You go and preach to a thousand in the Sunday night and come and clean the toilets on a Monday morning, and you knew how to keep you humble.
1: It's <laughs>
0: oh, great. Aye, but I love I I, I loved that uh, you know, everybody, I say, everybody has a sweet spot with God. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter what your calling is. You just have that thing when you're close to God. And for me, it wasn't so much about the preaching. It's not like that thing. But that time when you might, and I know that you said that time when you might be preaching, and it's not that you're listening and go, that's good. It's You're listening and go, where did that come from? Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know that the connection is pure at that point between you and heaven. You just know it, and it's... It's not something that you can get across to the people, but you just know, you go home, and you go, God, you're really connected. You with know, me You're really. And it normally comes when we think we're rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> because
1: the power is in the word, the power is in the spirit. Not I, I never said
0: anything I was intending saying, and God's let I know. <laughs> so I, so that that developed. I was an absolutely, an tremendously blessed and privileged, and it led to... The first time I got to go on a plane, which is a boyhood dream, not to go on a plane, but to look out down below the for something about it that's always captivated me. And mm-hmm. it was a Virgin Atlantic flight to Swaziland to help promote a new teen challenge ministry. And I probably cried, other than annoying Pete Ryan, who I'm still friends with, because, you know, I got on a plane, but I was in the middle seat, three, <laughs> sort of, and <laughs> I, I, just it, it? That's, that's, I remember sitting there with a lot of guys who'd had uh, Christian crack or double-double shot espressos. 1998, that was a novelty. But they go there thinking this was great they should have known when the coffee mark the stall was away in a wee corner spot and he threw away for everything else at that point <laughs> and they're all like, at ah, that and i'm sitting there going god i can't believe you put me on the middle and then peter Ryan swapped seats with me after i annoyed him i will still be very honest and tell you i was a pain in the back side <laughs> and I, I wept flying over africa and just looking down fell asleep and woke up as we're coming into johannesburg and i thought this is this is nothing to do with ministry. It's not to do with calling. It's not to do with saving souls. It's just a father blessing his child. Okay. That was it, and I just that alone could keep me for the rest of my life. Just that sight mm-hmm.
1: of seeing the goodness yeah. of God.
0: No, like, if you've ever flown into Johannesburg, you'll know it's pretty bland, <laughs> <laughs> but it's the most beautiful sight I've ever seen in my life.
1: <laughs> so you were doing like the travelling thing, and I know think Chance still would do that. And then they kind of came a point when you you were going to leave that? Like, what, what came about there?
0: I, I probably should have left about a year before. I, you know, there's that unsettling. There was one of these moments between me and God again. I'm sitting in a house. So this was before the phone call. But I'm sitting in a house, and I just remember thinking, and it's like, I remember John Copatrick in Brownsville, Pensacola, during the revival, preached a great message on Eagle's Nest. A lot of people have copied, probably plagiarized it since. First time I heard it, and they talked about how everything that brings comfort to the the the, the, the young eagle you Know the feathers and all that when it's time for the to leave, the mother begins to strip the nest bare so that the things that used to bring comfort now irritate and annoy. And mm-hmm. to the point then, that if the eagle won't leave, she'll flick it up and she'll swoop down and kick, but you're thrown out. And do. it was beginning to feel a bit like that in Teen Challenge. The things I used to enjoy were becoming uncomfortable. And Guy was my friend that I shared the house with, uh, he's now my brother in law. Uh, he would get very hyper after he preached. I mean, ridiculously hyper, right? It still does. Uh, but he'd been home, at, he's from Dublin, he'd been home at Christmas speaking to one of his assistant pastor at St. Mark's Church in Dublin. And uh, But she wasn't in the end and he talked to his daughter. So I'm in the other room. And I'm like, you know, curiosity, my room is at the front of the house, the sitting rooms at the back. And so I've walked in, and the next thing he's done is like, here, talk to my mate. Nobody ever talks to him. And, you know, it was just so ridiculous. I remember somebody, I can't believe you're honest about it. I said, but that's the story. <laughs> He's, you know, such a great mate. This says, and, you know, you can imagine that awkward silence as I'm talking to us last on the phone. He never really says much. Uh, 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 and then, so I handed the phone back to him after saying nothing. And he went, write him a letter. Maybe they ever writes to him, which wasn't it true. But, you know... Uh, and then he's like match.com here. <laughs> it. He wasn't very good at it. And uh well actually West Winter. He? <laughs> <tried to laughs> <the next> <laughs> he had a fun. But I phoned my mom just after I says, Mom, what do you make you're a Stephen fella trying to get married after some Irish woman? No, this is a nothing statement, but in the context of how I was just a couple of years before, she went, you better know it's bad enough you're doing wheels. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that was it. So Tracy did. She sent me a letter just a couple of weeks later. Very nice, very encouraging. Actually, uh, actually very godly. We still have the letters just to prove to my daughters they were godly letters. Awesome. And just encouraging each other. And then she came over with a whole bunch. A whole bunch used to come to Ireland for the graduations because there was always Irish people graduating. And she came where I them and I was on the sound and all that. At that time, uh, they decided my singing was so good that that. Uh, <laughs> anyway. And so I'm running about and, you know, she's there and her wee daughter's there running about. And I knew who the daughter was. I just, this wee, beautiful wee blonde hair, lassie running about. And so I'm up to see Tracy. And I was still very awkward around people. I'd had relationships, but I'd never had a long-term relationship. My love affair before Teen's Islands was heroin. Mm-hmm. It really was. And it sort of preserved me in a lot of ways. And, uh, but it was just funny how that night went. But they were all staying in the apostolic training centre, the Bible college, which was around the corner for us. Stephen wanted his King's Chris and That's what it was when we went around. I was supposed to meet up with Tracy, but it's one of them. you know, the imposter syndrome kicks in. I don't want to get into a conversation because they'll see how bad I am, sort of things. And uh, But we ended up going around, and we talked for hours in the kitchen and went to And Both of us knew right away, we were going to be married. We knew that night, do you know what I mean? And uh, so, but that started the leaving yeah, Teen yeah. Challenge. We met seed back and forward a couple of times. Uh, stayed with my friends, Jane Fiona, who were pastors, graduate and all, great evangelist. And uh, But I remember after one visit, I went in to speak to Paul Evans, who was my direct boss for evidence. Uh, and I says, uh, I says, Paul, I'm going to hand in my notice, three months' notice. right I went, one lassie comes fluttering around. I says, it's not like that, and you know that. And he went, uh, and I remember saying probably the most mature statement that ever came out of my mouth. time, "Paul, I'm not asking you to agree with my decision, but I am asking you to respect it." And it just went out. And you know what? He actually increased the opportunities for me to preach and all that after that. Mm-hmm. It's good. The, the senior management—they called me emotionally immature at the time. <coughs> it was time for me to go. They offered me a position going to Swaziland to end up head up the prison ministry. <laughs> and so, but it was again that. And I just says, "I says, can I ask you something?" She says, "If I hadn't handed in my notice, would you have offered me it?" And they went, "Probably not." I says, "Well, it's not a god thing." So she <laughs> says, it's, "It's manipulation," and I'm better than you. <laughs> I've got some experience in that, <laughs> but that is what it was. And I thought, no. So. And then you
1: ended up in Dublin.
0: I did. I came back to Scotland. I came back to Glasgow for three months under the. Pro- we left in July, so it was two months. All these promises that was going, you not for me, and nothing did. I went over to Dublin. Funnily enough, it was went over the week before the eleventh of September because the eleventh of September, the year before the eleventh of September, funnily enough, was uh, so I went over and Stephen was new over there. He was new, engaged to Tracy's sister, and all the rest. They're kind of weird, but he says, "Listen, he started working in factory called Blenders, and he says I've got you an interview." Says, "What do you mean you got me an interview?" Says, "For a job." And I, why? And he went, "No, so." I turned up for an interview, and a bit I've never, you know. And I sat down with a wonderful woman, dear Bum, she was the, the factory shop supervisor, and she says, you don't need to worry about your past, Stephen's already told me. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, what? She says, I already know you used to take... Don't worry about that, that's not the type of company we are, we just want to know, can you do the job? And I, she says, "She says, can, when can you start? I says, I live in Scotland, it's about far to travel. And it just worked out that I moved over, I think that Sunday. And it was funny, Ryanair, those days didn't he charge for luggage and bags. and. It was boxes, like a tenor I, like oh, I, I was running about that, but it was meant to had boxes and boxes of books and everything all coming through. And I started what that day in Blender, that Monday in Blender's. What a fantastic job. The two brothers that had started that, I'd go into a lot of churches and all that and talk about how these guys knew how to encourage, inspire, and criticise. You you just knew they knew how to build team, and any time there was a win for the company, it was shared with the company. Which meant when there was issues like, for instance, <coughs> a blue plaster was found in a pasta sauce jar. That's what they made. They got to criticise the company, and it was brilliant. I shared it many times, and even to this day, it was like, you know, if you know how to encourage people, they will take your criticism. Mm-hmm. If they only hear from you when you criticise. Don't be surprised if they get defensive. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And I think there's a good lesson for that for us pastors at in yeah, that that sure. we make sure we encourage people even in the small things. They'll be far more willing to listen to the stuff that might be preemptive. Yeah. I was just,
1: just ago, the whole sermon and the preach the word first Timothy thing and mm. it was like rebuke but also encourage. Yeah. He says if all you do is rebuke and correct And not encouraged that you're not not doing
0: that. Yeah, if you're rebuking, I mean, you're squashing it, you're you're condensing it, and they need that air breathed into them as well. They need that life breathed into them as well.
1: So anyway, so God's clearly at work here, opening doors again, as he's been Mm. doing. and, And then there's a move into, I guess what we call pastoral ministry or... Um, once you've got married and stuff,
0: so yeah. what? So I mean, we'd, all, we'd always been sort of involved because St. Mark's was a big church. Mm. And, you know, I'd been through a couple of jobs. I worked on Blender for a year and a half, ended up. I was promoted three times in the year and a half just by applying what I'd been taught as a Christian. Well, I worked for another company, Christian Charity, working the long term unemployed, and then I was invited to work for St. Mark's as the administrator. Okay. But it was basically so that I could get paid. I was doing a lot of stuff for nothing, and it was so I didn't have to work yeah, yeah. and do that. But uh, what, several house groups, we had one in our home, and there would be 20, 25 people at it. But when it was obvious it was time to leave St. Mark's, I remember Gary Davidson had said to his, Have you considered pastoral ministry? And Tracy says, Where? And I went, That's not important. Do you know what I mean? And Gary went, That's right. And we moved up to Northern Ireland. Uh, we were long process in moving up, it wasn't that simple, but that was around about August, September. And we immigrated from Dublin to Ballymena, and it is immigration. Do
1: you know, what, I, I didn't even know that about you. I read that. My granny used to live just in Cullybacky.
0: Okay, I have good, good friends Absolutely. Yeah. So Worked in rights and all, obviously, which is just a long road in Gilgorm. Yeah, yeah. But I, uh, Ballymena, if you ask my wife where she would move to, if she was given mm-hmm. the freedom to move anywhere in the British Isles, because, you know, Irish people, if you're listening, the South is still part of the British Isles. It might not be the UK, <laughs> <laughs> but it would be Ballymena. And yet the church was the proper school of Christ us. I don't really go into that because I think it was the one time where it got so toxic for mm-hmm. us that it, it was very, very difficult. And I, I really struggled with my mental health at that time, but yet there was men like Jeff Wright and that who, mm-hmm. you know, some of the most picked on or the most godly we know, what Jeff Wright at that time were actually proper angels for us mm-hmm. at, that, at that point in our life. And we needed that. And I also, so that was how we moved up there. Lifelong friends, lifelong. Barlamina, we absolutely loved it. I also then, when the assembly of God came to a pause, I was asked, Phil Hills had, been, funnily enough, had moved to Pastor Dundonald Elam Church in Northern Ireland, just months after I moved. Again, key positioning by God, because if Phil hadn't been there, I would have had nobody I could have trusted to turn to. a really, dark time, and Phil was brilliant, but he also got me into a leadership position in another Elam church, mm-hmm. alongside another guy, because I thought we need to keep Keep that going on in your life and at this time i felt like anything but a leader but again great friends funnily enough one of the women for church messaged me the other day about one of your family members struggling with addiction and could appoint her to anybody and because northern Ireland was so key for us within half an hour we had somebody local in touch with yeah. her and saying let's deal with us and i'm a networker <laughs> and i love that i love that you know they don't need to know who's joined the dots mm-hmm. they just need to know that god's moving on their behalf but Ballymina was tough and even knew it nearly brings tears to my eyes and yet I would not swap it for a world because I seen God moving and ways. I mean, do you know Ballymina? A wee bit. The shops where being yeah, in yeah. It, I remember there where McDonald's is McDonald's yeah, yeah, yeah. is key for ministers yeah, yeah. Where yeah, Ma- yeah. I remember walking down there one day Tracy was working uh, special needs assistant in school and I'm walking down and I, I won't say I was suicidal it wasn't like that but I was like God where are you in this because that's what I've been taught to like, where are you in this? And there was always that, hold on, trust me, mm. where are you? And you had to, some of the provision we'd seen was ridiculous. It really was. And uh, But it was tough and it was very lonely. And I
1: guess as you can look back now, as you say, and you see often, don't we, that in the hardest times of our life, God is doing things yeah. that we can never even imagine. Yeah. Like John Piper, one of the guys we love, says that God's always doing a thousand things in your life and you're maybe only aware of three of them. Yeah. Right. Um, and it's really through those trials that... Yeah. Um, that you're
0: going to grow. You Who know, That mother might know if I'd somewhere, because for whatever reasons, you know what Northern Ireland's like, everybody believes in God, we must keep them at a distance, yeah. right? And uh, But that mother might know if I'd anywhere to turn to if I hadn't went through that.
1: Definitely. And <laughs> the know, Lord is working yeah. in all of that. And, and then, so hi, let's get to, back to Easter House then. So, how did you end up?
0: Northern Ireland was over. It was very... I've always used Mark chapter 5 in the story of the man that calls himself Legion. I'm very deliberate with language. He called himself Legion all the demons did, yeah. but I don't think that's what his mum named him. Yeah. His labels are important. But I'd always used that many times sharing my story. Like, you even you heard me saying, look, like when he throws himself at Jesus' feet, and then he goes up and says, well, you also going to torment me? And I says, I know that many commentators will say that that's the demons crying out, but as someone that had received supposed help from many people... That never provided a cure. Can I tell you that even for me, there were times when I thought, nah, I'm, this isn't is real, this isn't going on. So I understood it from his mm-hmm. point of view, his mental health point of view, looking at it that. But I'd never really noticed the <laughs> fact I'd read it a million times. I mean, first of all, there's a the fact that how quickly some commentators think three days, three days it took for him to go from being demon-possessed to sitting clothed and in his right mind. But when Jesus says to him, I want you to go back to your friends and family and tell them what things the Lord, what great things the Lord has done for you. And for the first time, it really struck me that it's where the power of a testimony can go where Christ is not allowed. But I knew when I read that that day, I knew mostly in the middle of preaching, God's calling me home, and it was that melodramatic, that cheesy. Yeah. But I do. We just knew it was time. Circumstances had all decided that it was time for that as well. And uh, Teen Challenge over here at this time had tried to put some stuff in place to make the step easier for us. But we came home. I'd always, from my Teen Challenge days, for young lassie called Margot Lafferty was murdered in Glasgow City Centre. When I was in Teen Challenge and you moved, uh, I was reminded that my friends back home that were dying. And I wrote a poem called Roll. And it talked about, I'm sick of seeing my friends dying. God, will you help use me? But I knew better than to try and make it you know, God's calling or God's plan or purpose for me to try and fashion it from what I thought it should look like. So it was always trusting, but I always thought I was a good second man. Mm-hmm. I never thought I'd be the one mm-hmm. that would start something. I always thought, I'm a good second man. I can beat that really well. And it came obvious one day we were going to Harvest Christian Fellowship in Hamilton, and it just became obvious one of our friends there, Morris Logan, says, You're going to have to accept it's you. You're waiting on somebody coming, and God's already saying, I'm waiting on you. And we stepped up and Funnily enough, this Sunday, uh, about twentieth of February twenty eleven, we had our first service for Easterist Community Church in... Ten years. <coughs> Ten years, aye. <laughs> and you know, as, as small church on the schemes, it's not easy. And I, but I remember uh my former pastor of uh Easter's Baptist Church saying I hope this same was a god I'm expecting revival. He says in places like I shall looking for diamonds and the coal. He says it's 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 hard. He says, and you're mining for every soul and victory. And uh, that, that helped me. But at the same time, it, there's the mentality. It's like, but why does it have to be like that? Do you know what I mean? And I so that was 10 years ago. And, you know, moving on. So my daughters are here. Uh, some of the statistics that we get in social policy as the children of addicts are something like 80% likely to become addicts herself. And I'll look at my kids and go, no. Nope. And, you know, that's the things that I always got. I remember one day, and I know it will come to a close, I remember one day sitting in Teen Challenge, wasn't in a relationship or nothing else? I remember God saying to me, you're not saying no for you, you're saying it for your children and grandchildren. It's the, you know the curse of the father to the third and fourth generation, but the blessing of the righteous to a thousand. And the thought of being in a relationship, never mind having kids, was so alien to me. But that thought came from that, and it helped me with a lot of the long-term battles, and even in Ballymena, where are you? And so that for me and watching my daughters and them in life and being such an integral part of the church, you know, Alicia and Naomi, my eldest and my youngest, leading worship through the lockdown from our own home and up to church. Zoe at university doing what she's doing, very active in the Christian Union in Glasgow Caledonian and that. And you're thinking, I actually, God, do you know what? I'm not asking you to take me home, but I could actually go home knowing that you've honoured what you said to me. Despite me, probably 90% of the time, not really on them, what I committed to.
1: Right here, so that's really good end to the second part. Mm. We're definitely going to split this. Um, Sorry. But Sorry. <laughs> let's like, just quickly do the third part. I think we're going to do the shorter. Are we mm. going to be able to keep recording, do you think?
0: I think we're okay. okay. It's a, a bit <laughs> long. <laughs> Eight minutes two hours. Wow. See, that's, that's, that's an RH. That's fine. That's fine. When I go um, to debate with the humanists for the BBC thing, that was three and a half hours, right, I'm just saying. Well, we're not debating on. here. We edited that down to five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's <laughs> it.
1: So, third bit, is, I guess I want to just yeah. talk a little bit about how your ministry in this scheme or in the community of East Royce and what that looks like and and kind of stuff. And I guess there's maybe some places where we'll be yeah, different, which is... Maybe also right. helpful, but like what so like what has that been like then? Like what has been your aim, right? We're Platinum Church in Easter ice. Like obviously we want to share the gospel to people know Jesus, but what like what was that like for you?
0: I, I think in a lot of it, it's been very difficult, and the biggest barrier to it has been me <laughs> and my mentality. And it's not that the mentality's never been going back in and the victim mentality of oh, I used to be an addict or anything like that. But it, 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 the vision was always, when the verse it says, can any good thing come out, and as you've talking about Jesus, and uh, so can any good thing come out, Easter. So it was always for me, the vision was always very, very clear. A lighthouse to the local community, but also to the nation. Mm-hmm. And I think as a church, with some of the RIS stuff that we've put on the second part, it, it sounds vain, and I don't mean it that way, but I think we have to be confident, when we say we are very, very good in the sense of how God uses us as a bodybuilder, and even in that was having to do some real deep soul searching with God about two year ago, around right about this time two year ago on that, because you look at the numbers, we all do it. You look at the numbers and go, God, what's going on here? And I can understand why David was censured for his census in that sense. Because like you said, God can be doing a thousand different things. But what we learned was that through the different Arise events, so that would be the gala we do. So these big events mm-hmm. that we do, that brings people together from all streams of the body of Christ to do stuff, whether it be a rise, women, the kids stuff or whatever. But it's good for building up the body, which actually is what the fivefold ministry is supposed to be about anyway, you know. And I used to say when I was in my teen challenge days, if anybody asked me what my calling is, I would always quote you know Isaiah and say, you know, I've got beautiful feet. And because the first says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Who says to Zion, your God reigns. So before I really understood the fivefold fold ministry, I always knew my calling was an evangelist, but it was to the church, to show the church that God reigns, so that they can go out and show their communities that God reigns. And I think that I really struggled. I'd always say, I'm not a pastor, I'm having to do pastoring because nobody else would. And somebody that I really love and respect told me to shut up and stop it, because you will always act how you see yourself. And if I kept apologising for doing the pastoring, and it probably resulted a couple of times in me being very unfair to people that were very good and gifted and had come alongside because of the insecurities in that side of me. I knew we were good at the bodybuilding stuff. I knew that God was using us to do that, but the community was different. But actually, one of the so so when it came, we have a good core group that we've kept. You know, 15, 20 people, good core group. It used to be we do started Sunday evening meetings because it allowed other people, other churches, to come and help join in. So you were looking for the switch over and it became more your own. So they get bored, they get fed up, they go back to their own churches. Cause it's easier, but it's easier because it's what they're used to. And uh, so I was always keen on discipling. So for us, Bible study was always the most important meeting of the week. The Sunday was a celebration it wasn't, the Sunday was never church for us in that sense of how we think about it eh, I John Andrews, a good friend, we talked about this for me, the church was the Abrahamic altar of worship, as in Abraham in his early years, he would just stop I mean it was pretty terrible in the everyday really, but it would stop and build a stone altar and say let's worship God and so for me that was always what the Sunday worship was about, it was that, ok let's stop doing what we're doing and take time out and worship God and it was always trying to build that in we were really blessed that we would have really good worship people, music, as in music and praise people, coming along helping us with that. We loved the fact that they always said that they experienced their real freedom in Easter that they wouldn't even experience in their own church. That, I would say, comes directly, not just from Tracy's experience in the early days of St. Mark's, which was like that, but my team challenge upbringing where, and even to Ken's original prayer, let God be God mm-hmm. and us be witnesses. Mm-hmm. And you know, that was, so that was it. So some of the key areas would be prayer, I believe fundamentally in prayer, as you can imagine, but not where if we have an altar call, you spend 20 minutes asking people what they're coming for prayer for. I am an authoritarian. I don't pray for people at the altar call because I don't want that. A pastor doesn't pray for me. I've not been mm-hmm. prayed for. And I'm always, you know... If the Holy Ghost is going to touch these people at this moment, we believe that, and the words you are building towards a response moment, and that's not always like that. A lot of the times it's teaching, but the Bible study is for teaching. It's for discipleship. which come together. That I don't need you to ask them why they're coming forward for prayer. God already knows. What I need you to do is to tell them that you're standing with them. And if God speaks, then he speaks. And if he doesn't, don't be scared of the silence. But... I want it so that if people meet with God at the altar, they know it's God and not somebody just taking what they've said and giving back an emotional response to a heartfelt plea. Mm -hmm. And so that became, you know, we've seen the Holy Spirit really moving on that. So when I hear cessationists talking about it, I just come to Easter on a Sunday night. (laughs) You know, I don't get, I'm no interested in getting caught up in the doctrines over it. It's just when you've experienced the Holy Spirit moving and speaking into life with knowledge that you don't have, You can't argue with that. And I'm always just wanting people to experience the Holy Spirit raising up Christ. But more than that, and I think we somehow miss out a lot because we do preach Christ and Him crucified, but it's to build the bridge to God as a father. Mm -hmm. And that dynamic, that, especially in our scheme, is so missing. Mm -hmm. That people don't have... Well, I had a dad, but he wasn't a father most of the time. Do do you know what I mean? It's not knocking on me. He was who he was. But I do think there's a difference between that father who is able to affirm and uh, to 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 release, you know, in uh, John Eldridge's book on it, I've always lived by it. The, the, the son's looking for a dad that says, I'm proud of you, and the daughter's looking for a dad that says, you're beautiful, you're my princess. And and you're wanting that connection that we made with him. But Bible study for me has always been key. That that, that That's it, you know. I don't care if there's me and Tracy and the girls on a Sunday night. If we have a dozen at Bible study on a Tuesday the we functioning healthy church. So here's
1: like, so we would guess we'd be similar and different there. Um, so we would say our church you could be secessionist if you want, you could be continuationist, whatever you want to call that. Um, the focus here is going to be Jesus and the right. Spirit, the Spirit's key role is to speak yeah. through the world with the Word and lift up Jesus. Yeah. So that's what we would be like.
0: But I, I don't bear in mind this is our conversation. Yeah. This is probably the only time in my Johnny, Mike, that's May 1997, 24 years, that I would even enter into a conversation about secessionism, because I'm the same. It's about lifting up Christ, because he says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Yeah. But I will talk about the experience, and uh, again, oh. Aye, anyway, so, so and it's and about the experience of the power of the Holy Spirit. I,
1: I guess we would definitely want the Holy Spirit to work, um, and I guess our conviction we, we, so where this is also similar is you're talking about the Bible study. So our is is the Spirit will, will speak primarily through the yeah. Word, um, which is why. So I guess where we would differ is we, for our majority of our Sunday service, I'm looking out to where that is. We have a Bible open and I preach for like forty yeah. minutes through a passage, um, and we would be convicted that's where the Spirit is working through that. Now I guess you're I would like agree yes, you on that, you're a yes and no. no there I would agree is. You on
0: a, that. I, I would think well, here's for, So if we only have the Bible as your template and you know, one of the first proper revelations and revolutions I got as a Christian was, the Bible is not necessary for you to be saved, but it's absolutely fundamental for you to know that what you've experienced is salvation. Mm, okay. Because only the Bible we have is a template for it. But in the beginning, God spoke, mm. the Holy Spirit moved, and things were formed. And I'll say, I don't care how good your interpretation of the Bible is, I don't care how brilliant you think your book is, God, the Holy Spirit still only moves on God's Word. Mm. There is no other way, you know, so we can talk about maybe a word of knowledge. And the first thing I'll say, is, so somebody comes to you, and it's amazing how in charismatic circles and all the rest of it, you know, a guy that's lonely will have prophesied that he's going to have a blonde hair, blue eye. I, I get that, but nobody prophesied that <laughs> blonde hair, blue-eyed wife, and everything's going to be okay. Go, but actually, the only New Testament prophecy we're really able to have is, I'm going to show this man how much he must suffer for my namesake. Do, do, do you know? So I would actually agree with you on that. But because my very introduction to Christianity was a man choosing prayer, but every prayer and every result of prayer for me—has to be measured against the Word of God and in context. Yeah.
1: And again, I think that's—I think that's yeah. actually
0: a massive. I think we point really there. agree, but we just maybe difference in the terminology yeah. and potentially you know I mean. a
1: bit of a difference in how we might the practical outworking of mm-hmm. that. But certainly. I, again, we would always yeah. say that you can know the Bible inside out but unless the spirit is broken in and brought yeah. that to life in you then there's no point yeah. knowing the theology in your head but not in your heart so yeah. I guess that's key the other thing I was I, again just being about you guys a wee bit we always get painted probably fairly as like the fundamentalists that are like we talk about sin a lot so we, we'd still have people come through the door that would be like I've never heard so many people talk about sin so much yeah. and again I we don't necessarily shy away from that and I think there is a kind of some of us might talk about sin, some of us might talk about brokenness. Um, and not that they are completely different, they're obviously related, but I'm, even from how you've been talking through your story, there's probably been less of a talk on sin as I would have it more a yeah. talk on the like. Can you talk to that?
0: Got, I, a if, I, if, I, if, I, if I'm talking one-on-one to somebody, mind, I try I try and think, like, so for me, a key passage in how I conduct myself is Acts chapter two, but not the prayer room and Pentecost, but they spoke... In and, and, and tongues that the common man heard and understood gladly. Mm. I, I think we need to be careful that we don't devalue biblical language by always changing the word we use. But if I'm sitting one on one with somebody, I will be honest and say your problem's sin, mm. and no matter how you dress up, here's what sin is: sin is you trying to do in your way what God has ordained to be done His way. Mm. You, you're trying to do that. So the brokenness. Uh, David Wilkerson's very abrupt, and all he, he, he would always say. You know, as an addict, your problem is that you have a sin problem. You don't have a drug problem, you have a sin problem that manifests itself in addiction. It's not a disease other than the sin disease. So, yeah, but, you you, you know, for the sake of trying to listen, you're trying to draw people in uh, to what the language of the church is. But absolutely, sin and repentance, I hate the fact that so many have turned repentance into a dirty word. I think repentance is one of the most beautiful words in the English language. I really do. I hate the fact that people will go on about grace but not tell us the fruit of grace which is repentance mm. is that not the point of what, what whether we call hyper grace or whatever but isn't the message of the cross that because of christ i love the way that you says it comes knocking and banging and hammering his way in Is repentance that as in mm. we turn away from how we were conducting ourselves and turn ourselves towards I think the cross. Even so,
1: pete is writing some devotions for us just i am um, going through the run of easter and we're just reading through yeah. the Gospel of Mark. And so, was it yesterday's one, Pete? Was Mark one one, the good news of Jesus Son of God. And you, yeah. you you break it down to one fifteen, Jesus' message is, kingdom of God is here. Yeah. So repent yeah. and believe the gospel. Yeah. And that is good news. Yeah. It's not like, I guess sometimes, and again, I think we maybe need to be thinking, I, I would agree with you in terms of like, we want to make sure the words we are saying are what people, what we mean by them or what people hear, which is helpful. Um, but definitely the good news does involve we are sinners, <laughs> and yet through grace we can repent and know Jesus. Like
0: yeah, I I, I and you know what? So it might be it might be one of the fruit of this for me is making me think about how I do that. My language isn't tempered for the approval of church. Mm-hmm. Do, do you know what I mean? My language is tempered that others might see Christ mm-hmm. and Him crucified, mm-hmm. and that's the thing. So I think we spend a lot of time talking about Jesus. You know, who went about doing good and healing all those who were afflicted by the devil. Mm-hmm but not enough about Jesus was nailed to a cross I mean that we were covered that in great depth in Tuesday night videos and believe it or not Max Lucado does a bible study on Psalms which is fantastic, he wouldn't be most people's choice for doing discipleship, but how he goes through what forgiveness actually looks like and why, you know so if Christ takes that uh, list of wrongs that you've done and hides it between himself and the cross for instance, how dare you you know, so that's one that they say, well, you don't have to forgive because Christ forgave, which is one of the ones out there. But how? And that's the language of the gospel. How dare you choose to go about revealing other people's sins when Christ is hidden yours? How dare you make that a response? And you, So talk about reactions and responses. So how dare you, having received such great love, where Christ has taken your sin upon himself and has hidden it, not just from the world, but from heaven? And yet you want to go about and gossip and backbite and slander and reveal other people's sin and dress it up in church language. That is the greatest hypocrisy, and that's why even Paul says, "I am the chief among sinners." Right.
1: You know? well, here's the last one. We I'm also could, <laughs> we also get we talked about that we would speak about hell a lot more yeah. than anybody else speak of hell. I'm from Northern Ireland, so that kind of is naturally in my blood. Oh, yeah. But uh, also, I also think it's in the Bible. So um, so we would we're preaching good news. We would. We want to hear what we say. We say that Jesus gives us hope for now and the hope for eternity. He gives us hope for now because we are messed up. Sin affects us now. But actually, there's no point if we just focus on the now of our life, if that's like this. If there's an eternity coming and there is a heaven and a hell, there is a judgment, then we don't want just to help people's life here. We want to help people's life here because we believe that we we the ones to die and after that the judgment and if we are not covered by Christ's blood if we're not trusted in yeah. Jesus then we will be condemned rightfully punished in hell and so that's a, I think an important message
0: I, I don't think you can get through today no matter how good the count because it's only counselling if it's not fixed on eternity mm-hmm. it's only counselling if it's not fixed on the promise of what Christ has secured for us you know and uh, I, I that's all it is: is counselling, it's guidance, it's like me going to a drug addict and saying I can give you twelve steps to help you stop taking drugs. Why should you? Because actually, what you're experiencing under the veil of drugs is probably better than what most other people experience during the sheer mundaneness of their life. And I, 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 I yeah. So I, I do preach on that a lot. I preach on you know I, I am kingdom now, but only because of kingdom coming. It can only be because of that. I I, I take great delight in showing the promise of heaven, but to do that, you have to counterbalance it by what you are escaping, and it is a wrath. Mm -hmm. You know, if God does all things well, then what he has prepared, not for us, but for the angelic host that is in rebellion that we'll partake of, you'd think you us, then you better believe that it is somewhere. I mean, Jesus spoke more about hell than he did on heaven. He compared it to an eternally burning pile of rubbish outside the city. That people would be aware of, not just the flames, but the smell, the stench about it. And uh, Ian Paisley, I remember when hes one of the best preachers on the cross okay. you'll ever get—who uh, get caught up in the politics. But I remember, you know, one of his famous sayings about that. You know, because it says with much wailing and gnashing of teeth, and somebody being rather cheeky, whale, saying, uh, "What if you don't have any teeth?" And he says, "Teeth will be provided." Teeth
1: will be provided.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, but yeah, and 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 it is the wonder of the cross.
1: Because I think it makes that it makes the love of God more amazing when you yeah. see just what, like, if if he took that wrath, Christ for Upon me, himself. so that I do not need to go to that, even though I am a wretch. And I think you know, I think it makes the people think it. It makes the gospel less good news. I think it makes it more good news because you see the reality of both those. I, things. I
0: think it's because we're fixed in a temporal situation that we have a we, we are, time controls us whether we like it or not. And I don't think people can really comprehend that actually the true reality isn't a temporal reality. It's like God, it's how God can be at the start of my bad choices and then still at the end at the same time, knowing how that's going to work out to pick not, me up. It's okay. We lost the camera. Then. <laughs> I, I, that's okay. Good. Here, I it's think just, we should end this. This
1: has been really, really helpful. So, thank aye. you, so much. This will be our three-parter no doubt I think it'll be really <laughs> helpful three-parter for our mm. members and guys about. Um, but
0: no, I've really enjoyed it so much. I mean, I we started hurried up earlier and get into. The, no, just oh, do like this off-camera more often. So be, <laughs> I know. No, but I enjoy it. Exactly. <laughs> J- Jacob Reynolds, who was my principal when I done the Irish Bible Institute, which was predominantly Baptist in origin, but they would tell you non-denominational. And he had says, and he was brilliant, and it's what made me rethink what a worship service was. He says, what people think are major differences in theology, normally boil down to minor differences mm-hmm. in wording, mm-hmm. because fundamentally we all have to, we have to believe in the heaven and the hell. We have to believe that Christ took the wrath of God on Himself. We have to believe that no matter how movie makers try and produce it, men being horrible to Jesus wasn't the horror of the cross. Yeah. That was I mean. what man called justice. The horror of the cross was a full unleashing of God's wrath on him. Amen. And that sense for the first time in eternity where Christ says, Father, have you forsaken me? That sense of his dad turning his back so he never has to turn his back again. And yet Christ still embraces it.
1: And then, so that's why, again, we would always say if we can talk about these things with an open Bible yeah. um, as brothers and sisters, then we're well up for talking about it. Yeah. So I just, again, really appreciate that. That's been awesome. No,
0: I've enjoyed it. It's been really good. Thank you. This is
1: the book. I don't know if you can see this the camera. Um was I it? I see nothing. Not completing nice. the tenor. Oh, can we go
0: here? There you go. Um, <laughs> you can buy from Amazon, but it's better if you choose for me because I, I so get some money that way. You get in touch with us. <laughs> on, if you get in touch
1: with us or wherever you're listening to, we will get you in touch right. with Stuart. Um, and I think we've got a couple of copies for our yeah. members hopefully
0: today as well. Yes, but, um, they're in my bag. Thank you so much. <laughs> really appreciate all that chat. Thank you, guys. Yeah. It's been fantastic. Cool. Thank you for listening to the My Hope Story podcast. To find out how you can have your own hope story, go to www.myhopestory.co.uk.